0: So a couple of weeks ago, I come across this news item that yet another mass killing, another killing spree has occurred in, in the United States. I, I just thought, oh, just another mass killing. And, you know, I remember Columbine, when it happened, I, I remember just being very interested in the news story. And as each subsequent mass killing news story popped up since then, I, I feel like I've become more and more desensitized to it. But this, this one was a bit more interesting, I think, because I started seeing a lot of people posting things on the Internet regarding misogyny. So this, this killing a couple of weeks ago was the killing in Isla Vista, University of California, Santa Barbara. His name was Elliot Roger. So at first I just thought I was just another one of those stories and, and another headline and, and another tragedy and we would just move on as a society. But I started seeing a lot of people posting things about misogyny, a lot of things about sexism, a lot of things about men who hate women and, and want to hurt them. And I thought, well, that's interesting. But I, did, again, didn't really pay that much attention to it because I was very busy with work and didn't really have a lot of time to look into it. And then I started seeing people posting things um, saying not all men. I started seeing... ...men saying, hey, wait a second, not all men are misogynistic people who want to kill women. So I thought, well, that's interesting, just took note of that. And then I saw a huge backlash on the Not All Men movement called Yes, All Women. And again, read some of that material and was compelled a little bit more about the story. And then I saw some coverage of one of the fathers of the victims of the Isla Vista killings. He was talking about gun control and he had a very passionate speech about how we need to crack down on guns and how his son would still be alive if we had stricter gun laws. And I thought, oh, okay, well, makes sense. Another mass killing. So, you know, we have to start talking about gun control again and gun rights. And then I started seeing a backlash against that. I saw an article written about something that Joe the plumber was saying and how he was saying that, I don't know, something obnoxious, honestly. I can't remember what it was. Something like, just because your son is dead doesn't mean you can take away my guns or something, something crass like that. And then I started seeing more back and forth between the not all men and the yes, all women movements. I started seeing lots of really nasty fighting there. And then I started getting some emails from listeners saying, hey, are you going to weigh in on this? Are you going to have an episode about the Isla Vista killings? I'd be curious to hear what your opinion is. And I thought, hmm. Maybe I should do that. So here we are. Uh, By the way, welcome to the podcast called Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda. I'm a professor and a licensed therapist. And today it's just me, and I'm going to be talking about the Eye of the Vista killings. So I read a lot of stuff on the internet. So uh, take everything that I say in this episode with that in mind. I am, you know, pretty skeptical of things I read on the internet and try to find credible sources and try to verify accounts and, and this sort of thing. And I try to give it a lot of thoughts. So it's not as if I'm just blurting out what I've read on the internet, but just again, take everything that I'm about to say with that in mind, that all my information is, is from the internet. I've also read a lot of opinions and I've read uh, a lot of psychological literature on the topic, I've read a lot of statistics, and I've compiled the following talk based on all of that. I have 24 pages of notes, and so <laughs> I have no idea how long this episode is going to take. In, in my head, I'm guessing it'll take five hours. I don't know. So if you're listening, you might want to settle in, get comfortable, and get ready for a long episode. So my first reaction after reading everything was, frankly, horror. I was horrified, by what I read. The killings themselves were brutal and tragic and horrific, terrible, and heartbreaking. The way that the killer did it and the planning that he had and the videos he uploaded and the manifesto and the things that he said, it, it all just has a particular flavor to it that is, again, particularly horrifying. The other feeling I had was sadness. For the friends and families of the individuals uh, of the victims and and also for the friends and families of the perpetrator, the perpetrator Elliot Roger seemed to have a, a caring family uh, at least that's what it seems like upon what I have available to me the, the The third emotion besides horror and sadness that I had was just fascination with the with the story. There are so many twists and turns and so many unexpected elements to this story it, it really, compelled me. And I thought I was just going to prepare for this episode by, I don't know, taking a couple hours to read various things. I, I ended up reading and thinking and researching for a number of days, for a number of hours. It really consumed me. It, it was a, It's just a, a very interesting story that I think relates to psychology and to counseling and psychotherapy a lot. There are some of these mass killings that it just seems like, why are we talking about it in detail? There's really nothing we can learn from it. In this case, I think it, there is a lot we can learn from it. I think there's a lot of policy changes that can be made as a result of this. I think, I think it has a lot of implications in a lot of different areas that are involved in mental health. So uh, I think that was another reason why it was compelling to me. So a number of questions came up as I was reading through all the material. Questions like, why did this happen? Why did Elliot Roger go on this killing spree? Why did it happen? Other another question I, I had as, as I was reading was, who is this guy? Who is Elliot Roger? What made him tick? Other questions were who were the victims? Who were the people that died? You know, at first glance the the story seemed to be that we had a young white male privileged who decided to kill women because they were not having sex with him that that was the main headline you know uh jilted white male kills women in retribution and as you'll see the story is is much more complex than that so uh other questions that i had uh were what are the parents responsibility in this um, was it their fault can they be blamed uh what's what was elliot's childhood like this sort of thing Another question that that's been floating around in the media is, is it the police's fault? Is it, I don't know if you say police's, is it the, is it the fault of the police? Is it the fault of the legal system? Who's to blame? Is it the mental health system's fault? Is it the mental health professional's fault? Um, Is it, is it society's fault? Is it due to misogyny? Is it due to sexism? Is it due to social pressure to be cool? Was he bullied? Was he traumatized? Was it due to racism? And why isn't there much talk about racism? And should we be talking about racism? Uh, and um, again, why, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why do things like this happen? Are they happening more frequently? And how can we prevent them from happening again? So these are all questions that were running through my mind. And, and I think that after, at the end of this talk, you might be able to have some answers for that. So let's start with some of the facts. Um, what happened? And uh, I decided to kind of go way back, so I want to start from the beginning and, and start with Elliot Rogers' childhood. And again, all this information was pulled from a number of sources on the internet, so I, I'm not c- quite sure if it's correct, but there was a lot of confirmation on the things that I have here. Um, first, off, first off, his father is his current age is around 49. He's a British man. They didn't say whether he was English or Scottish, just British. He is a British filmmaker and photographer. He uh, actually was the assistant director on The Hunger Games, which is what a lot of articles were pointing to, which is, you know, sort of interesting. Peter Roger, Elliot Rogers' father, appears to be Caucasian, but I couldn't find any information on that. He looks Caucasian, but who knows? Peter Rogers' career was in directing commercials. And upon the September 11 terrorist attacks, he decided to make a documentary and he visited 23 countries over the span of two and a half years and asked a lot of people, including some famous people, what is God? And the documentary is called, Oh My God. Incidentally, Elliot Roger wrote and later this writing was, was found. He wrote of his father. He said, if only my failure of a father had made better decisions with his directing career instead of wasting his money on that stupid documentary. So, again, that that those are the words of Elliot Roger. He's talking about his father and he's saying, if only my failure of a father had made better decisions with his directing career instead of wasting his money on that stupid documentary. So apparently the documentary didn't make very much money. And uh, it was seen as somewhat of a financial failure on the father's part, and Elliot Roger was shameful about that. So Elliot's mother, she's older than the father; she's fifty-three years old. And this is interesting, which I didn't realize at first, and how how could I? But her um, Elliot's mother is Malaysian. She was born in Malaysia. Her name is Ong Ling Chin. She might have been of Chinese heritage who lived in Mal- who was born in Malaysia but I couldn't find much information on that. Uh, I, I most sources said she was Malaysian but some sources said she was Chinese Malaysian but I wouldn't put it past some people on the internet having the inability to differentiate between Chinese and Malaysian people, which is absolutely idiotic but but I do know she was born in Malaysia and her name is Malaysian so you know take that for what it's worth. Well, she was a nurse in Malaysia, and she moved to London, where she got a job as a nurse on film sets. And she became friends with people in the movie industry, including Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, who, according to Elliot, even dated his mother for a while. So Elliot had written that George Lucas dated his mom. So Elliot's parents, uh, Peter and Ongling Ling Chin, had two children, Elliot was the oldest, and they had a daughter, Georgia. So these two children are of mixed race, being Malaysian and Caucasian British. So when Elliot was five, they moved to the United States, they moved to Los Angeles to work in the film industry. And two years later, the parents divorced when Elliot was eight. Uh, Peter remarried a woman, that has a name that I can't pronounce. And apparently she's a French actress of Moroccan origin. So it's quite a multicultural family that Elliot comes from. Elliot reportedly never liked his stepmother, and in his final days planned to actually kill her. So in conclusion, Elliot was a British-born, half-Malaysian, half-white young man living in California at the time of the killings. And he had a French stepmother of Moroccan origin. So the claim that he was a white American privileged boy is apparently misguided. But I'll get into more of that later. So Elliot had been in therapy since he was a young child. The parents took him to various counselors and psychiatrists throughout his life. He was put on medication. The details I couldn't find I'm guessing that the various counselors and psychiatrists have not made any public statements yet. I'm guessing that at least some of them will, and we'll have that information at that point. But at this point, we just know that he was put on a number of medication. And incidentally, around the time of the killings, when Elliot was of college age, he refused to take his psychiatric medication, but I'll I'll talk about that more later. I was trying to figure out why the parents would have had him in and out of seeing counselors and therapists and psychiatrists and psychologists as a child. I was trying to figure out what the what the presenting problems were, and and here's the following list that I pulled from from many many sources. And I can't, you know, obviously I can't confirm them, but uh, this this is what I'm guessing he was brought into therapy for. He apparently was a very lonely, introverted, and isolated child and young adult. He throughout his life he he would say he was lonely. He was observed to be quite introverted and quite awkward with people, and was very socially anxious uh, since he was a very young child. His parents tried to set him up on play dates, but they never took. His father uh, reportedly said he that. Elliot was an enigma that they could never figure out what was wrong with him. Elliot was reported to be distant, remote, and unknowable. He lied a lot of times, and he seemed to not have remorse about lying. A parent who who knew Elliot in elementary school described him as an emotionally troubled boy who would come over to their house and just hide from everybody. She said, if I could have picked anyone who would have done this, the killings, that is, it would have been Elliot. My husband and I didn't want our son to stay with Elliot. So there was something about Elliot that alarmed parents, and they observed him to be different and emotionally troubled and socially anxious. So... His parents moved him around from school to school, and this is a typical thing that parents will do with children like this. Incidentally, I've worked with clients like this before. It's not very often, but uh, I've worked with people like this before. And what often will happen is the child will have difficulties with teachers and with peers. And as a solution, parents will move them from school to school because it's easier to just start over instead of trying to repair any of the relationships uh, at the current school. So we, I see a, a similar pattern here where he went to a number of different high schools, for instance. He claimed that he was being bullied, and so that prompted many of the moves from school to school. When he was a sophomore in high school, a school administrator said that he, Elliot, suffered a panic attack. He just stood immobilized in the hallway. And a teacher went outside to get his mother, who was waiting in the car, and, sh- and the mother had to come in to get Elliot to snap out of his immobilized panic attack. So it's, it's a bit of an interesting presentation there. Uh, and incidentally, after that panic attack, he never returned to that school. His parents moved him to a, a new school. His parents said that as a teen, he was a loner who would never leave his room. His family suspected he was somewhere on the autism spectrum. There's some account of him being diagnosed with highly functional Asperger's syndrome as a child, but more details are needed. There's some debate as to whether or not that diagnosis was actually given by a professional or if the mother was just throwing it out there during the divorce. And incidentally, the label of mild autism or highly functional Asperger's syndrome, is often applied to people like this. And also, I I could say that many within my field find these diagnoses to be problematic and difficult to substantiate. When you have someone that seems to be acting a little strange and they're having some difficulties in school... Asperger's or autism, mild autism, is often one of the first things that people will throw out there as a possibility. And for whatever reason, it seems to provide comfort to people. People want to have that diagnosis. But the fact is is that when, when it comes to mild autism, it's really hard to distinguish mild autism from something else. And, and honestly, it's hard to really figure out what to, what label to apply to kids like this. And you'll find that a lot of different diagnoses get applied to children like this, but, but I'll get into more of that later. So in summary, it appears that his parents sent him to many, many therapists throughout his childhood and, and young adult life. Many psychologists, many psychiatrists, many counselors, many social workers. And it looks like they were trying to address his difficulty with making friends, his difficulty socializing, his depression, his low self-esteem, perhaps his lying behaviors, although I'm not quite sure on that one, perhaps his defiance at home. Maybe he was being defiant. Uh, I think there was some account of him being defiant, not putting his video games down, not doing his homework, that kind of stuff. He clearly had anxiety that he was probably being treated for, and he might have been treated for possible aggression as well as a child, although there's some evidence that he wasn't aggressive until much later in his life. But uh, at the very least, there there were a lot of concerns about him since he was a young child. And so again, this really was a different story than what I had initially been uh, reading about it. The way it seemed, we just had this totally normal person who was this super misogynist and decided to act upon his misogyny and kill a bunch of people. But as we can clearly see here, he had been emotionally troubled for a very long time and that it's much more complicated than that. So moving on to specifically in high school, again, as I said earlier, Elliot attended a number of high schools and some of them were private. At one of the high schools, at a high school called Taft High School, he He complained of being shoved against lockers and belittled by other boys in front of other girls. So right here we have perhaps the first hint of his later obsession about getting the affection of women and being envious of other boys and and, and feeling as if people are ridiculing him in a sexual way. So he he complained about being shoved against lockers and, and belittled by other boys, and it was particularly difficult to him because it was in front of girls. And apparently some people mocked him for a small stature. He was, by his account, five foot nine and, 100, and 135 pounds. Personally, I wouldn't call a five foot nine person small. <laughs> I would call them average, but apparently he had some kind of complex around that and thought that People were mocking him or actually experienced bullying because he was quote-unquote small. He wrote about one person taunting him as an average-looking manlet. I've never heard that uh, expression for manlet, you know, M-A-N-L-E-T, manlet, an average-looking manlet, which is, you know, not a nice thing to say to somebody and Elliot wrote that he responded to this person by saying I am a drop-dead gorgeous fabulous stylish exotic gem among thousands of rocks so I just want to repeat that this is what he said that you know his response was I am a drop-dead gorgeous fabulous stylish exotic gem among thousands of rocks so it's an interesting response to that And right here we start seeing this this evidence of a complex or of a particular personality in which he feels persecuted or is persecuted and responds by being extremely grandiose about himself. You know, he doesn't respond by saying... Hey, I'm not that bad looking or, or, Hey, girls like me sometimes, or, Hey, I'm not that short. You know, I'm average. Instead, he comes back by saying, I am a drop dead, gorgeous, fabulous, fabulous, stylish, exotic gem among thousands of rocks. So, you know, interesting narcissistic response. Um, it should also be noted that in high school at Taft, a behavioral specialist for the school district was assigned to him to help him cope with anxiety and other odd behaviors. So this is not a normal response from a school district. So for a school district to assign a behavioral specialist specifically to him to walk around with him and and perhaps even sit in class with him, this is a, an extreme response and would only be done under extreme circumstances in all likelihood. So right here, we have evidence that, at least partial evidence, that the, there were a lot of people who were observing him to, to be concerning and to have severe emotional problems. So some point later on, he ends up at another high school called Independence. I think it's called Independence High School. And in his manifesto that he later wrote, he recalled bursting with excitement on his first day uh, at at what w- would be his third high school that he was attending. And this was a school I, I, he was probably optimistic about it because it had only about a hundred students, and it just had about three or four hours of instruction each day instead of you know six or seven hours. And the school had a mission to help troubled children, so he was told that apparently, and he had a lot of he had a lot. Out of optimism about coming to this high school, and he was, he was, he seemed to be very happy about it. But that turned into dread on the first day. Um, his father was driving him to school, and he was in the car, and Elliot spotted quote unquote huge high school students walking around. And he said in his, in his manifesto that he cried in his car for a few minutes, telling his father that he was scared to get out. So again, we see a continuation of, of a number of themes here. Social anxiety, odd thinking, a kind of um, elevation of other people. It's interesting that as he was pulling up to the school, he focused on how huge the high school students were, and, and he felt instantly intimidated by that. Now, I should start adding into the conversation here the possibility that Elliot was traumatized. There is a lot of arrows pointing at Elliot being traumatized as a young child, say around four or five, or even younger, or some somewhere around there. But there's no direct evidence of that. But I don't want to be one of those people that thinks trauma is everywhere. It's definitely possible that he was never traumatized, but there seems to be a lot of arrows pointing in that direction. I wouldn't be surprised if eventually there is a revelation that he had indeed been uh, severely traumatized. And by the way, uh, I'm not diagnosing him at all. He's not my patient, and I hate it when people in the media diagnose people without having that person as a client. So, so I'm not diagnosing him by any means. I mean, everything I could be saying could be based on complete falsehoods. You know, the only way for any of us clinicians to have a grasp on what the true clinical picture for Elliot would be to obtain the psychological reports, then we might be able to see a lot more. But so just, you know, take all that I'm saying with that in mind. So just some other things about him at Independence High School. Elliot waited for the halls to clear before walking to class. So he would wait in in his classroom, he'd look out the window. Everyone would be walking to and from class and he would wait for it to clear before he went to his next class. That's how afraid he was of other people. He reportedly barely spoke to anyone. He was, you know, extremely quiet. He wrote in his manifesto that the other students threw food at him during lunchtime and, and threw food at him after school. He wrote, What kind of horrible, depraved people would poke fun at a boy younger than them who had just entered high school? So if if we're to believe this account, he was being bullied, and this was very difficult for him and added insult to injury. He was described by school staff as socially awkward he had trouble making eye contact and he was extremely withdrawn, apparently. Yet at the same time, a lot of people apparently liked him and said that some of the students had felt protective of him. And some of the staff members had referred to him as quote unquote R. Elliot. So they said, Oh, there's R. Elliot. Go out there and protect R. Elliot. So it wasn't all negative, apparently. And also, it should be pointed out that he re- reportedly was not violent or aggressive in high school. You know, there was a lot of concern about him, but violence and aggression was not one of those concerns. One of the staff people said he presented as very innocent, very soft-spoken, and he never raised his voice. So it's interesting, right? But before long, as high school progressed, he withdrew from his classwork and began to become obsessed with World of Warcraft. He withdrew from people even more and just played video games in his bedroom. And this is again, very common presentation that I see in clients like this. I see a lot of, of young men who will have trouble in school and socializing and with their family. And at first in high school, freshman, sophomore year, they're still basically trying. But by junior and senior year, it, it seems to reach a tipping point, maybe halfway through their sophomore year. And they, a lot of times, will just give up on school. They start to skip school. They stop turning in their homework. They withdraw a lot. They refuse to participate in family get-togethers and this sort of thing. And they, they just sit in their room and, and play video games all the time. So I certainly have, have seen this before. And, and that's another reason why this story is so compelling to me, because I have seen children like this before in my practice, and it, it makes me really want to know this story even more. Also, he reportedly fought with his stepmother when she told him to get offline. So his stepmother was really trying to get him to do his homework and get away from the, get away from the computer, and he and her would fight a lot about that. And again, very typical story that I hear in my practice. All right. So now let's go on to when he entered college. It is now 2010, 2010. He has graduated from high school and headed to Pierce College, which was one of a series of colleges he attended before attending University of California, Santa Barbara in Isla Vista, where the killings took place. So again, as with high school, he jumped around from different college to different college. And he eventually dropped out of all his classes at the beginning of 2012. So according to my rough calculation here, that's just a year and a half of college and probably not a lot of credits completed um, due to switching schools and whatnot. So reportedly during this time, the parents worried if he would ever be able to function on his own um, since he wasn't doing well in school and he wasn't socializing. And um, I don't know if he was even working. Uh, I don't know, but... Uh, The parents are really worried about him being able to function. So during this time, as with the rest of his life, he was being prescribed psychotropic medication. He declined to take them in college. As he got older, he became more and more defiant with regards to the mental health care. As with the rest of his life, he continued seeing several therapists and psychiatrists In in college, but um, reportedly after Elliot turned 18, he started rejecting the mental health care that his parents were providing him. While I'm on the topic of medication, uh, based on the accounts I found, I'm guessing he was prescribed various medication throughout his life. For, For example, Elliot was taking Xanax in the days before the mass shooting. Which is an acute anti anxiety med, or in other words, a, a fast onset, short acting anxiolytic, or benzodiazepine, or in other words, benzo. So, usually people call them benzos for short. Things like Valium, this sort of thing, are other benzos. So, essentially, you take it and it's supposed to instantly take away your anxiety. Essentially, it's like making you drunk to some extent very quickly. Xanax is a common medication for anxiety, um, so this appears to be a sound prescription for him given that he suffered from severe anxiety from an early age. It should be noted, though, that the possible side effects of Xanax include disinhibition or lack of uh, inhibiting one's behavior. It, it's associated with suicidality at times in rare cases. It's associated with aggression. Again, Xanax can in some rare cases, can actually increase one's aggression or rage. It can increase mania. Um, However, these are, again, rare side effects in people, but they are eerily coincidental, right? It'd be an interesting thing to investigate whether or not Xanax may have played a role in the uh, spree killing that he did. I I would guess not, given that he had been planning it for a long time, which I'll get into in a bit, but um, it is interesting. Elliot's parents told law enforcement that he had been taking Xanax in the days before the murders, and the parents feared that he could have been abusing the anti-anxiety medication. So just another tidbit there. Also during college, he reportedly became increasingly isolated, as if he wasn't isolated enough in high school. He became even more isolated, and he complained to others that he couldn't make friends, but people reportedly said they tried to make friends with him, and he would rebuff their attempts. Also, his writings and internet videos became increasingly bitter. He seemed to become more and more angry. He apparently began to resent the students in the tight-knit Isla Vista community. So apparently Isla Vista is a very small town of about 23,000 residents, and about half of the people that live in the town attend University of California, Santa Barbara, and apparently he became to resent that tight-knit community. He also showed that he viewed himself narcissistically as God's gift to women. He thought of himself as a catch and he hated attractive women whom he believed had been spurning him. He also started expressing his hatred toward men who had success with women. This was a pretty major theme throughout his time in college and eventually culminating in his, in the killings. During this time in college, his life appeared to be conducted entirely online. He again stopped attending school. He stopped going to therapy and he uh, appears to just have been staying in his apartment playing World of Warcraft. Uh, he also went online uh, to online forums and would communicate a lot. For instance, one of the sites he went to is called P U A HATE. P U A Hate. It's an online forum where participants rant against pickup artists who have more success with women. So P U A Hate is pickup artist hate. So again, it's the hatred of pickup artists. And the, the community of pickup artists, it's actually a community. It's actually kind of a movement among men that are trying to pick up women. And um, if anyone saw the TV show that. Mystery. He was on this. There's this guy that named himself Mystery. There's this whole community. It's very interesting. I actually would love to do an episode on the pickup artist community because I, I find it to be a fascinating topic. Uh, I had a client who was very much into this community, and so we had a lot of talks about it. And so I have a lot of opinions about it. So, Elliot Roger on this website called P U A Hate he expressed his disgust at women he questioned how women could have resisted him also on the site some of the members identify as incels or in other words it's a it's a abbreviation for involuntary celibates in other words people who are not having sex but want to have sex um apparently there's a movement among people who are unwillingly celibate and they call themselves incels so on the site in, in the forums he urged other incels to fight back and make women fear them he would rant about how we you know all of us incels need to rise up and make women fear us you know and we need to make them have sex with us and these kinds of things so sometimes others on the site would express solidarity with Elliot. They would say, yes, we need to do these sorts of things. But, but most of the time, people would criticize him for being desperate, insecure, entitled, bitter, and whiny. So as we can see, he was expressing his odd opinions early years before the killings. And people were reacting negatively against him during that time, even on the Internet, which is surprising given the way people express themselves on the Internet. So that brings us to 2011, three years ago. This is when he reportedly started to plan his killing spree. So this is interesting. So it wasn't just a a sudden event that happened. He had been planning this killing spree as far back as three years ago. So it's just interesting. A year later, in 2012, he st- started purchasing handguns and he, st- again, stopped seeing a psychiatrist. So one year ago, 2013, in July of 2013, uh, there's this you know interesting event that was reported a lot on. It was July 20th, 2013. He, he went to a party and apparently tried to shove women off who were sitting on a ledge. So apparently he's at a party and... And there are a number of women near a ledge and he was trying to, to shove them off. And he, and he wrote about this. He said that he couldn't shove the women off of the ledge and then several men intervened and pushed Elliot off the ledge instead and he injured his ankle. He wrote that he felt a snap in his ankle, followed by a stinging pain, and he tried to get away from there as fast as he could. But later, quickly, he he realized that he had left his Gucci sunglasses at the party, and Elliot returned to retrieve them. But some of the people he had tangled with before began mocking him and calling him names. Then they apparently dragged him into the driveway and beat him up. This is his words. When he got home later that night, one of Elliot's neighbors stated that he saw Roger come home crying and said that Elliot claimed that he was going to kill the men who attacked him and then commit suicide. So this is a year before the killing spree and we see him doing strange things, trying to push people off a ledge, which it's hard to imagine why someone would do that. And then um, some other men trying to presumably protect the women, push him off the ledge, and he hurts his ankle. Uh, he's humiliated. He comes home. He's crying, and he says he's going to kill all those guys, and he's going to commit suicide after. Actually, Elliot called the police on the men when he got home. He he wanted to report the men to the police, and he told investigating officers that he had been assaulted, but the police officers apparently determined that he, Elliot, himself might have been the aggressor, and the police decided not to press charges as as a result. He later stated in his manifesto that this incident was the final trigger for his planning of the killing spree. So at this point, he hatched his plan for what he called a slaughter and began buying handguns. So apparently he had this idea of a killing spree as far back as 2011, but it wasn't until July 20th, 2013 that he started to make his plans more aggressively. So over time, he bought three guns and a lot of ammo. He made these purchases legally. He abided by California's background check system and waiting periods, despite having been previously interviewed by police after trying to shove women off a ledge at a party. Under California law, there was nothing that could have prevented him from making these gun purchases. So, you know, it might seem um, strange to some people that. Someone with his background would be able to buy guns, but that sort of behavior doesn't preclude someone from buying a gun legally. So that brings us to the present year, 2014. There was an event that happened on January 15th. Elliot called the police and accused his roommate, chang Huan Hong, of stealing his candles. So this is a Taiwanese national who was in California, and apparently he was one of Elliot's roommates. Elliot lived with a couple guys from Taiwan, and he apparently accused one of, his, one of his roommates of stealing his candles, which is an interesting uh, charge. So Hong was arrested, actually, by the police, and charged with, with a petty theft infraction. He apparently pled guilty to the charge and had to pay some fee or give the candles back, I don't know. But this is a, just a bizarre story. Here we have Elliot you know, with this interesting history, and he's accusing his roommate of stealing his candles and actually calls the police on him, you know, instead of trying to work it out with Hong, he actually calls the police on his roommate for stealing his candles. And and another weird thing is that they stayed roommates after that. I'm just thinking if one of my roommates accused me of stealing his candles and someone was like Elliot, I would imagine I would try not to live with that person anymore. But I, I don't know the circumstances. There's not there's not a lot of details about this, but. Unfortunately, Hong would later become one of Elliot's initial stabbing victims, but I'll get into more of that later. So it's just another bizarre element to the story. You know, I don't know what to make of it. All right. That brings us up to April 30th, 2014. So this is just a, a month prior to the killings. And this is the infamous police visit to his apartment. So, again, this is an infamous event in the media and will likely be the cause for many lawsuits by the victims' families. I predict that the victims will sue the police department and successfully sue them for a lot of money because it appears the police might have neglected their duties. And I'll go into the details and you be the judge of that. So, again, this is a month before the killings, and Elliot had been uploading several videos that were becoming increasingly more concerning to people. And his parents were viewing all these videos because Elliot has a YouTube channel. And so they would check in on him and his videos became quite concerning. And so they called his therapist. They said, look, Elliot's been posting these concerning videos on YouTube So the therapist watches the videos and determines that they are indeed very concerning. And she calls the local community mental health center crisis team in Santa Barbara. And the crisis team ends up calling the police. So again, we have the family watching the videos. The family calls the therapist. The therapist calls the crisis team. And the crisis team calls the police. And I just have to say, as a clinician myself, this is a pretty unusual event. I've had a lot of clients and a lot of parents and a lot of people present a lot of behavior that many might think is, is quite concerning. But really, there's a pretty high threshold for a therapist calling the authorities Uh, therapists really have to believe that something is imminent, that someone is going to die soon. It can't just be like subtle threats of suicide or subtle threats of aggression. It has to be something that the therapist believes something's going to happen now. And if we don't act now, something's going to happen. So the police are called and six different police officers go to Elliot's apartment Four different sheriff's deputies and a university police officer, along with what they're calling a dispatcher in training, which I'm not sure if that's a police officer or some other sort of staff person. But anyway, there's six different people, uh, apparently, typically in a check the welfare call or a welfare check call is what they're calling it. Only two deputies would respond. But however, in this case, deputies who were not assigned to the call, but were familiar with Elliot as a victim in the January 2014 petty theft case also decided to respond for some unknown reason. So again, we have normally just two officers would come. But since the police were already aware of Elliot, they decided to double up and then triple up. So they had six different people. And again, just to put this in context, police officers around the country get calls like this all the time. They're, they're pretty routine, and I would imagine that most of them are innocuous, meaning that the police end up not hauling someone away. So, again, just to highlight this, the police this this particular police visit has been focused on by the media. Many say that if the police had done their job in this moment, the murderer would have been caught prior to the day of the murders, and the murders never would have happened. So when the police arrived at Elliot's address, they contacted him outside his residence. He came out of his residence and they talked with him outside of his door. And apparently they found him to be quote unquote shy, timid, and polite. When questioned by the police about the disturbing YouTube videos, Elliot told him he was having trouble fitting in socially and the videos were merely a way of expressing himself. Based upon this, the police concluded that Elliot was not an immediate threat to himself or others and that they did not have cause to place him on an involuntary mental health hold or to enter or search his residence. Again, the deputies determined he did not meet criteria for an involuntary detention. Therefore, they did not view the videos or conduct a weapons check. A sheriff's deputy on scene called Elliot's mother and briefed her on the situation. He then passed the phone to Elliot so he could speak to his mother directly. During the conversation with his mother, Elliot told her he was fine and he would call her later. Before leaving, the police officers gave Elliot information on several local services he could contact if he needed help. So the deputy's contact with Elliot lasted approximately a total of 10 minutes. Apparently, the sheriff's office has determined that the deputies who responded handled the call in a professional manner consistent with state law and department policy. However, many others disagree with this. The police administration spokesman is saying that the purpose of a wellness check is to see whether someone is physically okay and has come to no harm. However, many experts say that this is not true, that a wellness check is not simply to see if someone is physically okay. They say a wellness check is a check on whether or not someone is going to harm someone, which is a quite different evaluation, right? So apparently a wellness check is performed when a mental health professional's concern about a patient is so severe that he or she decides it is an emergency and that the person should be evaluated by a psychiatrist right away. So this is quite different than just checking on him to see if he's okay. So, again, this is why people are having a lot of issue with this, because the police just walked up, knocked on his door. Elliot comes out. They have a short conversation. He doesn't seem to be a, quote unquote, raving lunatic, and they just go home. But what would have happened if they would have viewed the videos? Because they didn't. They didn't look at the videos. I mean, that, that was the reason why they were there. Was because he had posted these concerning videos. So they probably should have looked at the videos. They probably should have called the parents and the therapist. They could have called the police, could have called them and said, so so what were you worried about? I mean, they get this call and they just show up and they ask Elliot, is everything okay?" And Elliot says, yeah, I'm fine. And then they go home without investigating at all. And they also should have looked around his apartment. Um, According to Elliot's own writings, if they had searched his place, they would have discovered his weapons and other elements of his plans for the quote unquote day of retribution. So Elliot wrote in his manifesto that he got, he really got away with something and that the police never entered his apartment and searched his place. So in conclusion, I'll just say from my experience, this is what typically happens in situations like this. Our system is such that it makes it very difficult to get people involuntarily committed. And even if they are committed, it's only for 72 hours, but I'll I'll talk more about that later. So somewhere around this point, uh, in the month prior to the killings, he wrote his famous manifesto, and it's titled, My Twisted World, The Story of Elliot Roger. It's about 107,000 words, which is about the size of a fiction novel. It's 137 pages. You can read it online if you want. The night of the murders, he emailed this manifesto to a dozen people, including his therapist, his parents, some of his family members, his former school teachers, and his childhood friends. He, email, he emailed it just before or in the middle of killing people, actually. In it, he mainly lashes out at women for rejecting him, and he also lashes out at men for being more smooth with the ladies. He also outlined his entire life. He called out everyone he hated. He detailed his plan to kill as many people as possible on his quote-unquote day of retribution, which he had been planning for at least three years. He wrote... I will attack the very girls who represent everything I hate in the female gender, the hottest sorority of UCSB, which was alpha Phi, which is a sorority. My sister was at, not at that college, but at UW. But anyway, Elliot also wrote on the day before the day of retribution, I will start the first phase of my vengeance, silently killing as many people as I can around Isla Vista by luring them into my apartment through some form of trickery. So this is a, Kind of a bizarre statement. So he says on the day before the day of retribution, he's going to lure people into his apart- apartment through trickery and he's, and he's going to kill them. As many people as he can. He also recounts meetings he, he had um, in the manifesto. He recounts meetings with everyone he had ever met, including a life coach named Tony and the psychiatrist who prescribed him the antipsychotic medication. He also wrote about an incident in which he heard about an African American classmate brag about losing his virginity at age 13. So, Elliot is listening to a peer talk about losing his virginity at age 13. And he wrote, How could an inferior, ugly black boy get a white girl and not me? I am beautiful and I am half white myself. I am descended from British aristocracy. He is descended from slaves. So here we start seeing elements of racism, which is another theme in his writing and in his actions, um, which is, again, another fascinating uh, element of, of these killings. So, again, he says, how could an inferior, ugly black boy get a white girl and not me? I am beautiful and I am half white myself. I am descended from British aristocracy. He is descended from slaves. Quite shocking. He also wrote of feeling tortured as he pined for quote unquote young blondes and of heading out to the mall to buy designer clothes that he thought would make him more appealing. At one point, he set out to become a millionaire. He planned a scheme to win the lottery and he made several trips to Arizona where he spent hundreds of dollars trying to win the Powerball jackpot. It's another kind of bizarre element to this. He's determined to become, you know, a millionaire in his plan to do that is by buying lottery tickets. Um, so, you know, this is an indication potentially of mental illness. And so we will get into more of that later. He also describes seeing two hot blonde girls, quote unquote, two hot blonde girls waiting at a bus stop. He flashed them a smile and they ignored him. And he wrote about this incident in a rage. So this is him writing in a rage. I made a U-turn pulled up to their bus stop and splashed my Starbucks latte all over them. I felt a feeling of spiteful satisfaction as I saw it stain their jeans. He has a way of putting things, you know, it's just, it's not like, you know, ranting and raving. He, he, he writes in a way that, you know, he paints a good picture in a short amount of space, which is a sign of a good writer. So it was in a rage. I made a U-turn pulled up to their bus stop and splashed my Starbucks latte all over them. I felt a feeling of spiteful satisfaction as I saw it stain their jeans. You know, you can really picture that in your mind. He also wrote about seeing a quote-unquote flock of beautiful blonde girls playing kickball with fraternity jocks at a park. So he's, you know, driving around town and he sees some, you know, boys and girls playing kickball, which is Bizarre. Why are you playing kickball? You're not in the third grade. But anyway, he became rageful, uh, drove, and this is all him writing. He said, he became rageful. He drove to Kmart, purchased a water gun, filled it with orange juice, returned to the park, and screamed at them with rage as he sprayed them with his super soaker. This is him writing. So again, it's just a bizarre story. So, you know, he sees people playing kickball, and he's jealous of them, and and he becomes rageful. He goes to Kmart, buys a super soaker, fills it with orange juice, returns to the park, screams at them with rage, and sprays them with orange juice. I mean, I just can't imagine what that must have looked like to the people. You know, this random guy pulls up and is so angry at them, and and you're thinking, oh my God, is he going to kill us? He's got a gun. And he sprays them with orange juice. Now, to me, these stories seem... These stories seem very odd, you know, <laughs> I don't know about you. Uh, and they also seem possibly fictional. Um, so it's possible that he could have been making these stories up. It's also possible that it could have been part of his delusion. It's it's hard to tell. I mean, they, they're right on the edge of of that situation where you could you could almost see it happening, but you could also see it being a little bit too bizarre. So again, there are hints of psychosis here, but they're only hints. So as the day of the killing spree approached, there were signs that he was planning this day of retribution. He had been posting various videos around the Internet that were getting increasingly more concerning to people. And someone on the Internet Uh, responded to one of his videos and said, I'm not trying to be mean, but the creepy vibe you give off in those videos is likely the major reason that you can't get girls. So there are people that were responding to him. And Elliot responded to this comment by saying, my parents discovered the videos, so I temporarily took them down. They will be back up in a few days, along with more videos I've filmed. So it's just interesting that well before, you know, days before or weeks before he ended up killing people, he was, he was already seemingly decided that he was going to do it. But it's, again, it's kind of hard to tell. So now we're up to the day just before the killings. It's May 22nd, 2014. This is two weeks ago. It's a Thursday. He started uploading a, a bunch of videos in the videos he's listening to music in his BMW and driving around on a sunny evening in in Santa Barbara it's a it's a beautiful town it looks like he's videoing himself in in sunglasses he's just driving around occasionally talking and striking poses he's he's making kissy faces at the at the video camera i find it Interesting that in the videos, he's pretty much exclusively listening to 80s pop music, which is music from my childhood. Like he's listening to Whitney Houston, How Would I Know? Uh, he's also listening to Walking on Sunshine. Uh, he's listening to that Belinda Carlisle hit that she had. And he's, he's also listening to George Michael, Father Figure. It's just a bizarre juxtaposition seeing him the day before he is doing the killings and, and just driving around town and occasionally talking to the video camera. And then these this 80s music is in the background. You know, the more and more I think about it, I wonder if he was copycatting American Psycho, the movie. There's, there's actually a lot of American Psycho coincidences here. <laughs> but anyway, so there's an infamous final video that he recorded the day before the killings. So he recorded the video just the day before, but he uploaded the video during the killings. So I just thought I would just play it because you really just have to hear his voice. Um, so I'm just going to play it now.
1: Hi, Elliot Roger here. Well, this is my last video. It all has to come to this. Tomorrow is the day of retribution. The day in which I will have my revenge against humanity against all of you. For the last eight years of my life, ever since I've hit puberty, I've been forced to endure an existence of loneliness, rejection, and unfulfilled desires, all because girls have never been attracted to me. Girls gave their affection and sex and love to other men, but never to me. I'm 22 years old and I'm still a virgin. I've never even kissed a girl. I've been through college for two and a half years, more than that actually. And I'm still a virgin. It has been very torturous. College is the time when everyone experiences those things such as sex and fun and, and pleasure. But in those years, I've had to rot in loneliness. It's not fair. You girls have never been attracted to me. I don't know why you girls aren't attracted to me, but I will punish you all for it. It's an injustice, a crime, because I don't know what you don't see in me. I'm the perfect guy. And yet you throw yourselves at all these obnoxious men, instead of me, the supreme gentleman. I will punish all of you for it. (laughs) On the day of retribution, I am going to enter the hottest sorority house of UCSB. I will slaughter every single spoiled, stuck-up, blonde slut I see inside there. All those girls that I've desired so much. They would have all rejected me and looked down upon me as an inferior man if I ever made a sexual advance towards them. While they throw themselves at these obnoxious brutes... take great pleasure in slaughtering all of you you will finally see that I am in truth the superior one the true alpha male (laughs) yes after I've annihilated every single girl in the sorority house I'll take to the streets of Isla Vista and slay every single person I see there. All those popular kids who live such lives of hedonistic pleasure while I've had to rot in loneliness for all these years. They've all looked down upon me every time I tried to go out and join them. They've all treated me like a mouse. Well, now I will be a god compared to you. You will all be animals You are animals, and I will slaughter you like animals. I'll be a god exacting my retribution and all those who deserve it. And you do deserve it, just for the crime of living a better life than me. All you popular kids, you've never accepted me, and now you'll all pay for it. Girls... All I've ever wanted was to love you and to be loved by you. I've wanted a girlfriend. I've wanted sex. I've wanted love, affection, adoration. You think I'm unworthy of it. That's a crime that can never be forgiven. If I can't have you girls, I will destroy you. (laughs) You denied me a happy life. And in turn, I will deny all of you life. (laughs) It's only fair. I hate all of you. Humanity is a disgusting, wretched, depraved species. If I had it in my power I would stop at nothing to reduce every single one of you to mountains of skulls and rivers of blood. And rightfully so. You deserve to be annihilated. And I will give that to you. You never showed me any mercy. And so I'll show you none. (laughs) You forced me to suffer all my life. And now I'll make you all suffer. I've waited a long time for this. I'll give you... exactly... What you deserve, all of you. All you girls who rejected me and looked down upon me and you know, treated me like scum while you gave yourselves to other men. And all of you men for living a better life than me, all of you sexually active men, I hate you. I hate all of you. I can't wait to give you exactly what you deserve. Utter annihilation.
0: Pretty chilling, right? There are just so many different reactions to that. It's so chilling. I don't know. I can't even put into words my reaction to that. Watching him is, it's just so horrible. I mean, it's like he knows how to terrorize people. Um, Yeah, I'm just speechless. So I'm going to take a little break, and I'm going to come back, continue. All right, I'm back. Now we're at the day of the killing. We're at the day of the killing spree. It's, it's May 23rd, 2014. It's a Friday, uh, which is a couple weeks ago. So at some point before the rampage, before the killing spree, he killed three victims in his residence. Apparently it was two roommates and one visitor. I think they were all Taiwanese nationals that were in the United States. Uh, he killed these three men by stabbing them. Their ages were 19, 20, and 20, and all three were UC Santa Barbara students. And and again, one of them was the one that he pressed charges regarding stealing his candles. So apparently the three victims were repeatedly stabbed, possibly while sleeping. So I don't know if that means it happened the day before, or maybe it happened that, you know, it's it's hard to tell. So again, remember, he was referring to luring people into his apartment and killing them the day before. So maybe this was a part of that. So then uh, on Friday at night at about 830, he was seen by witnesses sitting in his car in the parking lot of his apartment building around 830, working on his laptop. So I think we could assume that he might be adding the final touches to his videos into his manifesto because at around nine seventeen p.m. he uploaded the final video to YouTube. That video that I just played, he 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 uploaded that to YouTube, and then a minute later, nine eighteen, he emailed the manifesto to several people again to about twelve people: his family, his therapist, his childhood friends, his his childhood teachers. These these people. He then got he. He then drove around Isla Vista in his car. Less than, I don't know, eight minutes later, he ends up at the Alpha Phi Sorority at UC Santa Barbara. He knocked on the door for a few minutes. He was loud and aggressive. He was knocking for, you know, again, a number of minutes, but no one opened the door. After no one answered, he left the door of the sorority house, and within 20 paces, he encountered a group that included the two next victims on his list of six people that he ended up killing, Veronica Weiss and Catherine Cooper. So witnesses in the Alpha Phi sorority, because they had come to the windows wondering, who is this guy banging on our front door? And as they watched him walk away, they saw him shoot and kill two UCSB students and he also shot a third woman but she survived. So uh, Veronica Weiss was 19 and Catherine Cooper was 22. He then fired at a nearby couple. The man was wounded while the woman received a superficial graze injury. This is when the first 911 call was placed. It's about 9 27 p.m. So then he jumped in his car and he drove to a nearby delicatessen he got out of the car, went inside the deli, and killed another UCSB student, a male, by the name of Christopher Michaels Martinez, age 20. This is the victim who, whose father was at the press conference advocating for stricter gun laws. But anyway, police officers were nearby and saw his car driving away from the scene. Um, and by the way, all the killings and all this occurred within a few blocks of his house. So he just got in his car, you know, started driving, just driving around where he, he lived. And so all this occurred within a few blocks. So after this shooting at the deli, Elliot returned to his car and drove off to another place where he fired multiple rounds at two people on the sidewalk He missed both people, thank God. He drove his vehicle down the wrong side of the road at this point so he could fire out the driver's side window, you know, being parallel to the sidewalk. He then brandished his gun at a different woman, but did not shoot her for some reason. So there were reports of him talking to a lot of victims before shooting them. So he was driving around, talking to people, shooting them, sometimes not. So he continued driving and he again pulled a handgun on a female and fired more shots. He also spotted some police officers at that point, and he started firing shots at the police officers. The police officers fire back. Elliot drove off. He sees someone on a bicycle and he runs him over. He sees someone on a skateboard and he runs him over—not run him over, but you know, hit him with his hit. Hit these people with his car. Um, he started firing at at more pedestrians. He hit three more pedestrians, but didn't kill them. Uh, then he shot another pedestrian but that person did not die. He encountered four more police officers running in response to the gunfire. He fired at them as he drove by. Three of the four deputies returned fire, striking his car as it went by. Elliot was wounded by one of the shots in the left hip, so the bullet must have gone through the door and hit him in the hip, and Elliot drove off. He accelerated when he saw another person on a bicycle and hit that person with his car. The person on the on the Bicycle flew up in the air and onto the car and smashed the windshield of the BMW. So if you see pictures of the of the car in its final moment, the, the windshield is completely bashed in. So this is now at 9.37. Elliot crashes his car into a parked vehicle. The deputies run up, pull him out of the car, handcuff him. But then they see that Elliot had a gun wound to the head and that he was dead. So it's unclear when Elliot shot himself But it seems likely that after the car crashed, he decided to kill himself at that point. They found three handguns and 400 rounds of ammunition in the car. All the ammunition was loaded into 41 magazines. So again, he had three handguns and he had 40 clips of ammo ready to go. So shortly after the killings, about 20 minutes later... Elliot's therapist saw the final email that that Elliot had sent a little bit earlier. The, the therapist contacted the police department at approximately ten eleven. The therapist also called Elliot's mother. The mother read the manifesto and immediately went to YouTube because you know he was often. Uh, uploading things to YouTube. She saw that video. She then called her ex-husband, Elliot's father, and the parents raced in separate cars to from from Los Angeles to Santa Barbara, but obviously were too late. So that's that. Now for the aftermath. One of the interesting stories that I read about was that the fathers met up. Peter Roger, Elliot Roger's father, he met up with Richard Martinez, whose son was killed in the deli. Richard Martinez reached out to Elliot's father, and Elliot's father agreed to a private meeting. Uh, Many have said that the meeting was odd, but uh, I I think it was probably a good thing. Whenever we want to heal from our emotional wounds, I think sometimes meetings meetings like this can facilitate that. So after compiling all of that information, the first thing I looked up was what experts were saying about his diagnosis. I was very curious to see what people were saying, and I was quite uh, shocked by some of the things I was seeing. I saw many, many diagnoses being thrown around. Narcissistic personality disorder, psychosis, paranoid schizophrenia, schizotypal personality disorder, mania, bipolar, mild autism. I also saw creatine overdose. Apparently, he was taking creatine to get buff to work out. I saw people writing, many people writing about how he was an obvious manifestation of misogynistic Seth Rogen movies. So if you know who Seth Rogan is and Judd Apatow, they were accused of having propagated certain cultural understandings that led to this killing. Seth Rogan and Judd Apatow actually fought back on these uh, accusations. Also, another pseudo diagnosis given by a psychologist, actually a licensed psychologist who was being interviewed on Fox News. Uh, this psychologist diagnosed him with, quote-unquote, unsatisfied gay tendencies. So, I don't know what that's all about. So, personally, I don't like to diagnose from afar, but after reviewing all the documents and the videos, I thought I might provide the following tentative commentary. I'm guessing he would have been puzzling in an assessment because he does not fit neatly into any particular diagnostic category, in my opinion. And again, I should couch all this in the reality that if you presented The same data to 10 different clinicians, you would get 11 different opinions. So regarding autism, if he was autistic, it was, it was a very mild case, but I don't know why that diagnosis would be necessary given his other presentation. He, he, he certainly didn't seem autistic to me. I mean, if you hang out with people who are diagnosed with autism, there's a certain way that they tend to act. And he, he didn't present that way. It's, it's possible. I mean, I could see someone making a case that his social anxiety and his perseveration and his inability to socialize could all be evidence of mild autism. But it seems like, like a stretch. And plus politically speaking, I think it's a little strange that society and some clinicians are so quick to apply very mild autism to people like this. I think it's, for whatever reason, it's, it's more palatable to parents to imagine that their child is mildly autistic than some of the other possible diagnoses. I, I don't know what the deal is. And it should be noted that the nature of mental illness is not a hard science. When, when we are evaluating people, especially people that don't fit neatly into one of the diagnostic categories, there's a lot of guesswork and a lot of people saying, "Well, he fits the criteria." Those kinds of statements. It's not like medicine, where if you have a tumor, you can find it. You know, if you have a tumor, you can see it in imaging, or you can actually open up the body and see the tumor. When it comes to mental illness, there's there's nothing to see. You, you just have to go off of self report or certain tests that are supposed that are correlated with particular things. And a lot of it's socially constructed. You know, a lot of what we consider to be particular mental illnesses are constructed socially. We we invent them. Um, we We see particular things and we apply labels to them. But the particular disorders have been argued to actually not exist, if that makes any sense. I won't go into that too much. But anyway, so regarding narcissistic personality disorder, he certainly fits several criteria. But clinicians need a lot of face-to-face time with a patient before making such a diagnosis. Personality disorders are quite complex, and I won't go into the details on that. But just know that when responsible clinicians diagnose someone with something like narcissistic personality disorder, they usually will work with someone for a number of weeks, if not months, before they can really firmly say that someone has the disorder. So, it's unclear if he suffered from social anxiety, or if he saw the world in such a way that mandated social fear, if that makes any sense. So, social anxiety alone, if someone's just suffering from what we call social anxiety, they, the individual will often see it as excessive and irrational. You know, they'll say, I'm very shy, or something, you know, they'll say something like that. They'll, they'll recognize that their anxiety is probably excessive, but he did not appear to have that judgment. He appeared to have an odd point of view of what other people were thinking, and that might have led to a social anxiety. So there's evidence in the record that throughout his childhood and, and adolescence, he, he had a lot of social anxiety. He was, you know, he isolated himself and he was very awkward around people and he was terrified of people. And so if he just had social anxiety, in all likelihood, he would have been able to say to himself, well, I'm just a very shy person and I'm very introverted and I have trouble talking to people. That's what people with so- social anxiety will say. But there's another group of people that if you believe that people are evil, if you believe that people are out to get you, then that will make you very afraid of them naturally. So the, the, the fear is rational. You know, the fear is, is normal given the way that you see the world which is not normal so if you see the world in a not normal way and it produces normal anxiety then you wouldn't call that social anxiety you would call that an anxiety associated with some other disorder but again it's, it's really hard to tell and again I'm not diagnosing from afar. So this would be more akin to a delusion if you had a delusion that society was out to get you and you were afraid as a result of that, then the diagnosis would be a delusion or psychosis or something along those lines. You wouldn't necessarily diagnose the person with social anxiety. So one approach to cases like this that are difficult to pigeonhole into a particular diagnosis is to just list what we see and not try to fit them into one of the limited number of DSM-5 diagnoses that are available to us. So, so let's assume that his videos, his manifesto, and his online activity were all an accurate representation of the way that he thought. Now, that that's a, that's an assumption that we we can't really confirm. You know, it's possible that he was lying the whole time, but let's just assume that th- these videos and the manifesto and all his online activity were uh, an accurate representation of what was going on in his mind. But again, we can't assume that. So we see that he was extremely socially anxious from an early age, and no matter how many therapists he went to, he remained anxious, if not became more anxious. So we can make that observation. He had a very odd way of thinking about social situations, as we can see. You know, for instance, remember the story of him driving up to the school, and he's very optimistic. It's a special school for special kids, and it's a small school, and he's very excited. And without even getting out of the car, he just sees the other high school students and he's terrified at how huge they are. Now, unless these, you know, kids were somehow off the curve in terms of their body size i'm guessing they weren't i'm guessing they were average and if we you know again consider that he was average if not just slightly below average size then you know that's a strange reaction to have again there's a possibility here that he was traumatized and his ptsd was triggered but we don't see any direct evidence of that so in lieu of any kind of ptsd we see here that he had an odd way of thinking about social situations. You know, everyone, when they pull up to a high school is a little bit afraid. They're a little bit like, Oh God, you know, are they going to accept me? What's going to happen? But his reaction was really quite severe. And again, it wasn't that he was saying, Oh boy, I'm shy. I don't know what to do. He had a, he had a way of looking at other people as if they were going to harm him. And again, is it PTSD related or is it some kind of thought problem? Another thing that we might be able to say based on things that we see on the internet is that he was paranoid about the way others viewed him. He thought women were purposely denying him their bodies for sex. He said this many, many times in the video and his manifesto. For instance, one of the quotes he said was, Why do women behave like vicious, stupid, cruel animals who take delight in my suffering? So this is a very odd way of looking at the situation. You know, he's 22. He stated in the video that he's never even kissed a girl, and there are many different ways of looking at that. Again, most people in situations like that would just look like, well, I'm a loser, our girls don't like me, I'm not interesting. That's what you'll hear people say. But instead, he says, women are vicious, stupid, cruel animals who take delight in my suffering. So he really sees women as purposefully denying him sex and attention and taking delight in his suffering. That's a very odd way of looking at things, don't you think? So he had additional odd views about others, odd beliefs. And, And this is all indicative of schizotypal personality disorder. This is a very difficult disorder to describe. I've worked with people with schizotypal personality disorder. It's it's not a very easy diagnosis to talk about. And again, it's just a set of behaviors that we observe in people and then we label it. it, it at this point in our neuroscience, we can't really say that it's something, that it's a medical condition. It's just we see a set of symptoms and we, we say, well, it kind of looks like this. And so... That's what this is. Is it kind of looks like schizotypal personality disorder, but again, it's a complicated disorder, requires a lot of observation, and um, you know, I'm not saying he had that because again, I can't diagnose him. But the things that he's presenting seem to point in that direction. People with schizo- schizotypal personality disorder will think very odd thoughts about other people that result in them being almost paranoid about what other people think about them socially. The the way that that I like to describe it is that it's in the direction of psychosis. It's it's like a mild delusion that other people hate them and other people think that they are ridiculous in some way. And what happens as a result is the individual is extremely socially anxious, which we might see in this case of Elliot. If a shy person walks into a therapist's office and says, boy, you know, I have a really hard time socializing with people. I have no friends, and uh, I've always had difficulty talking to people. Well, you know, after a few sessions, the therapist says, well, let's, you know, let's look at some of your assumptions here, you know. Why do you suppose it's so hard to, you know, make friends? And the client might say, "Well, I'm really i am a very uninteresting person. I have nothing to say." And the therapist will say something like, "Well, you know, tell me about yourself. You know, tell me. The client tells the therapist about, you know, their life, and the therapist says, "Actually, you seem like an interesting, average person, and could have things to say at a party. It's just that you think you don't have anything to say, and so you choose to believe that, and that leads to you having social anxiety." And the person might say, hmm, well, maybe you're right. Maybe I maybe I do have something to say. So so that's that's in a nutshell the way that social anxiety will present in someone's office. It it has some malleability to it. There's some flexibility. The client might be extremely anxious, but is willing to listen to counter arguments to their assumptions about what is happening. And they can become convinced, especially through uh, practice socially with other people, they can become convinced that a lot of their assumptions are, in fact, inaccurate and that their social anxiety was based on a lot of irrational cognitions. But what makes it a personality disorder is that they are not easily convinced. In fact, they might not ever be convinced. It's just the way that they see the world. And no matter how much you point out that their ideas about other people are potentially irrational, they will not believe you. It's just how they see the world. It's so entrenched in their personality. They cannot be convinced otherwise. And so as a result, they are very difficult to treat and have a really hard time helping themselves because they are totally convinced that other people are thinking evil thoughts about them. Now, if you talk to other people about schizotypal personality disorder, they'll describe it in a different way. This is the way I'm describing it, and I'm basing it on my own clinical observations. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But Elliot Roger seems to exhibit some of that. It's hard to say. He's not a quintessential case in, in my opinion, but it seems to fit to some extent. So in addition to him being socially anxious and potentially schizotypal, he was also very narcissistic and entitled. Again, if we're going to take his manifesto and his video As as a accurate representation of how he thought, he presented a lot of narcissism and a lot of entitlement. You know, I think anyone would agree with that. For instance, he he wrote repeatedly about being destined for greatness, and he stated that quote unquote I am the ideal magnificent gentleman." in you heard him say these sorts of things in the video that I played. So this is what we call in the business narcissistic and entitled. He also believed that he was the one who needed to impart justice on the world. So this is a you know another element to his personality. He thought of himself as the one person that needed to make things right, and he was going to do that by harming, other, harming others and, and killing them. So another element to his personality that we see in the videos and the manifesto, again, if we're going to take it as accurate, is that he lacked empathy. And this is an important thing to identify in, in some people. He, he seemed to lack the ability to care about other people's feelings, clearly, right? Uh, another thing we see is that he had sadistic fantasies. And here's a quote. He said, I will cut them, flay them, strip all the skin off their flesh, and pour boiling water all over them while they are still alive, as well as any other form of torture I could possibly think of. When they are dead, I will behead them and keep their heads in a bag. Quote. So, these are pretty detailed. You know, some people will say, I want to kill that guy. I want to, I want to kill him. It's, it's another thing to say, I want to cut them, flay them, strip their skin off their flesh, pour boiling water all over them while they're still alive. And da, 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 da. you know, these are very detailed fantasies and visions and they're sadistic. And so it's just another part of his personality is that he had sadistic fantasies. Again, this is Potentially indicative of PTSD. Some people with PTSD will have these kinds of thoughts about people. It's a way of protecting the self from the trauma that they experience. So, again, I I, I would still hold out for a potential story that will emerge that he suffered some form of horrific trauma as a child, but uh, there's no direct evidence of that. So I just don't know yet. So I've, I've I've listed a lot of what we call in the business psychopathic traits, so psychopathy is, is an area of personality disorders that is actually not in the DSM. The symptoms include narcissism, the lack of empathy, and the presence of sadism. So these are all psychopathic traits. He was also grandiose, right? He was very grandiose about who he was. He, he saw himself as a god. He saw himself as bigger and better than everyone else. And here's another quote from him. He says, humanity has never accepted me among them. And now I know why I am more than human. I am superior to them all. I am Elliot Roger, magnificent, glorious, supreme, eminent, divine. I am the closest thing there is to a living God. And he goes on. Everyone will fear me as the powerful God. I am. So, it's, you know, he's not really beating around the bush here. This is quite grandiose. Seeing yourself as a god and superior to all other human beings is a grandiosity, right? And this is indicative of some people with psychopathy. It could be indicative of someone who's schizotypal. And it could be also indicative of someone who's manic, someone who is bipolar and experiencing mania. The quintessential presentation is someone who is in the throes of a manic episode. So, in summary, Even though, again, I dislike diagnosing from afar, if we are to take his online presence as accurate, Elliot had features of psychopathy, schizotypal personality, sadism, narcissism, delusions of grandeur, severe envy of other people. He had evidence somewhat of mania, and he was somewhat paranoid. So those are what we can say. Does that fit into any one particular diagnosis? No. But sometimes I wonder, why do we need to fit everything into one of the DSM-5 diagnoses? Can't we just list the symptoms or list the things that we observe? Can't we just do that and just leave it at that? Sometimes it's easier and more accurate to, to talk about things like that. So again, we have psychopathy, schizotypal personality, sadism, narcissism, delusions of grandeur, envy, paranoia, and possible bipolar. So, lots there, right? And what does it all mean? I don't know, but it's just the way that us people in psychology talk. So, but before I go on out of the diagnostic uh, section here, I just want to say one thing about mild autism that I didn't get to. And that is, is that a lot of people in the autistic community, a lot of people who have been labeled with autism are getting very upset and rightfully so that a lot of these mass killings are being identified with autism. There is a, is a problem with this, I think, in the media because autism is difficult to understand, particularly mild autism. And a lot of people are beginning to associate mild autism with lack of empathy and the propensity to kill people and these are associations that should not be made people with mild autism are not likely to kill anybody this all happened with the Adam Lanza case it, it you know it was people were saying that he may have had mild autism and he may have so mild autism started to become associated with these killings and I just want to come out and say that we do not need to spread that rumor. And also, it doesn't appear that he had autism. But if you presented the same data to another clinician, they might actually see mild autism. It just really depends on how you see mild autism. Um, all right. so So let's talk about feminism and misogyny. There was a lot of fighting back and forth between feminists and what I might call non-feminists. Long story short, some feminists see Elliot as a product of sexism and women hate. They will point to the fact that in the last 33 years, 70 of the 71 mass murders in the U.S. were all men. And Why is that? Feminists, which I consider myself one of, tend to see a lot of social construction and a lot of culture in our behavior. And they would say that, you know, if, if you have the majority of mass murderers being men, then we must be teaching men to do something that makes them be more likely to kill people. And there's a good argument for that. It's hard to prove, but there's a very good argument for that. And they also say that men are socialized to believe that they're entitled to women's bodies, which results in many social ills, including sexual objectification and even rape. On the other side of, of the aisle, you'll see men saying that it's inaccurate to label a crazy person's behavior on sexism and culture. So these men see themselves as nice people who would not hurt a fly, and that these feminists uh, who are equating Elliot Rogers' behavior as misogynistic, they, they, these men see this as an attack upon. The male gender. It's, it's a bit of a stretch, but it seems as though that, that's what they, they say. They don't want men as a whole to be associated with Elliot, whom they see as an aberrant example of a man. And I, I believe this is where the Not All Men movement came from, so the Not All Men. As a feminist myself, here's my opinion. First off, we have to just stop and recognize that a tragedy occurred and it is very sad and it is very shocking. I mean, that's just the bottom line to some extent. This horrible thing happened and it's shocking to all of us. It's somewhat traumatic for, for us just to, just to be exposed to this story. And it's, and it's very sad. Secondly, does misogyny and sexism exist in America? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Do, do many people ignore that fact or refuse to accept it? Yes. Most people refuse to admit that American society is misogynistic and sexist are women treated unfairly in America in various ways yes I could provide plenty of research that proves that women are 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 treated differently than men Are, are women regularly targeted with violence and rape by men due to misogyny yes absolutely because we socialize men to take sex from women, to chase women down, to not accept no for an answer. We teach these messages to boys, not not to all boys, but to many through various different subtle messages. And does this result in some men lacking the ability to have clear judgment And does this influence some men who might have a propensity to rape? And does this influence a rare breed of men to actually rape women? Yes. Does it influence all men to sexually objectify women and harm them? I would say yes. So there are a lot of things we can say about misogyny being present in our society and a lot of the harm that it does to people. But another question that we would ask is, are most men good people who would never intentionally harm someone? Yes. You know, most, most men would never intentionally harm anyone. And all the feminists talk about misogyny is not to say that all men are evil. But I think that some feminists actually will say that. They will say that men are the problem when in fact men wake up, you know, in the morning and plan to be good in the world they plan to do good so it's not a man against woman thing it's an issue of our culture that we definitely need to change all of us need to change it and we need everyone to be on board men and women and there's no there's no reason to blame anyone for growing up in a particular culture Uh, another question is do we need to change our culture absolutely but the most important question is this Can we use the tragedy of the Elliot-Roger killings as a jumping-off point to talk about sexism? That's really the main point that I want to bring up. And I'll say that, yeah, but it might not be advised since many of those on the other side, the people who are not up for talking about misogyny, many of those people will discount the whole argument since Elliot-Roger can be considered a crazy person, quote-unquote, and therefore irrelevant to them. So if you're trying to start a conversation about misogyny, I don't know if Elliot Roger is really the topic that you want to lead with, because a lot of people on the other side are just going to say, you're crazy for for using a crazy person, essentially. But to those people who think that talking about Elliot Roger is irrelevant when it comes to misogyny, let me just ask you this. If a story came out about somebody that had gone on a killing spree killing a bunch of black people in the South, and they were a white supremacist, they were a member of the KKK— And they went to a rally for black people of some sort and just started killing a bunch of black people and had all these Internet rantings about how black people need to be wiped off the face of the earth or they need to go back to Africa and that black people need to stay away from white women and all this sort of stuff. Now, most people would say, well, yeah, obviously the guy was a massive racist and he exemplifies racist culture in America. And boy, if we weren't so racist in our culture, this guy probably wouldn't have done it, even though he clearly had a mental illness. Or at least I would imagine that's how people would react. Because as a society, we have accepted racism much more Readily or more easily, or we have a more of a history involving the advocacy of the understanding of racism than we do for sexism. Sexism is something that we have put a lot of effort into, but perhaps not as much effort as we've put into promoting ideas around racism so you know if 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 you put it in that context it makes it, it brings up some interesting points, right so it's just something to think about if you're one of those people that thinks that, hey, don't bring up Elliot Roger when you're talking about sexism because he's crazy and he's he's nothing like me well, okay, that's fine you're not You're not a misogynist who wants to kill a bunch of women, great, but we can agree that misogyny exists in our culture, and that it's definitely a problem right so anyway um Some have even said that he's a product of white male privilege, white American male privilege, when in contrast, he's half Asian. He was raised by a Malaysian born mother and he's British. So to say he's a white American male is inaccurate. But again, do we need to get rid of misogyny? Yes. I'm just not sure if Elliot Roger is the totem that we want to raise in the effort of trying to reduce misogyny. So now let's go on to to racism. The topic of racism seems to have been somewhat lost in the mix, and and I'm not sure why. Most, Most journalists, again, refer to him as white. When he's not white, he's half Asian, like myself. I take offense to just assuming that he's white. He even looks half Asian to me, particularly when he was younger. But even after his mixed race status came out in the media, many commentators were still trying desperately to keep him as white because they were trying to make a point that he was the product of white male privilege. And if he's a person of color, that apparently destroys their argument. So, you know, at first people were saying, oh, he's obviously uh, expressing white privilege. And then people come out and say, actually, he's not white. He, he's he's mixed. And then commentators were saying, well, he's, he's basically white because he was raised in in America. And then they say, actually, he was raised in Britain. Well, same difference. Britain is a white country. So he, he's basically white. So it's all just kind of a weird thing. You know, when people start saying, you know, it's like Obama, it's like, Oh, he's black. Well, he's half white. Well, he he's, but he's black, you know, it's just weird. I just, as a mixed race person myself, I always find it very strange that people can't hold on to the notion that people can be both things. You know, Obama is white and he's black. I am Japanese and I'm white. Elliot Roger was Malaysian and he was white British. How, why, it's just two things. It's not like 15 things. How, how hard is it to hold on to just two different ideas? But for some reason it's hard for people. So can we use all of this as a jumping off point to talk about racism? Sure. Does white supremacy exist in America? Yes, absolutely. It's much more subtle now than it was in the past, but yes, it definitely exists. Empirical studies prove this over and over again. Most Americans see white people as being smarter, more moral, more attractive, more competent, less criminal, etc. These have been proved time and time again. So uh, we live in a racist culture. Can a half Asian British man be bigoted? Oh my God, yes. Trying to make him white so that you can make the point that he was bigoted is strange to me because bigotry exists in every culture, every culture. It's sometimes I think Americans think that only Americans are racist, which is just ridiculous. It's almost racist to say that to some extent, racism exists around the globe. Americans are not unique in that way. Now, Americans have a particular brand of racism and because of our history with slavery and other issues that have plagued our country, we have a particular, entrenched kind of racism but does racism exist absolutely i'm a japanese person japanese people are supremely racist now they would n- not like to admit that but my god they're racist and so but they don't have the history of 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 slavery and this kind of thing but they have a different kind of history for instance they you know did a lot of horrific things to chinese people uh, around the you know world war ii and i wouldn't even go into that but anyway So if the commentators wanted to bring up racism, I I don't see why they had to make him white and American in order to talk about it. I can't see why they just didn't say, look, he's racist. He, He also happens to be what we call a person of color in America. But my God, he was racist. Let's talk about that. But for some reason, they needed to make him white because only white people are racist. I don't know. It's just a strange notion to me. And on that point, I have heard very well educated, well meaning Americans actually say things like that that only white people can be racist. And it just boggles my mind that people could say that only one particular group of people could be unfair to another group of people. It just, it just drives me nuts. So if we go to Elliot's writings and his YouTube videos, he wrote and talked a lot about race a number of times. Uh, for instance, here's some quotes. I always felt as if white girls thought less of me because I was half Asian. So that's interesting. He also degraded full Asian men as being disgusting. So he thought that full Asian men were disgusting. Uh, here's another quote. This Asian guy who was talking to a white girl, The sight of that filled me with rage. How could an ugly Asian attract the attention of a white girl while a beautiful Eurasian like myself never had any attention from them? So if you're not familiar, uh, when you're half white, half Asian, sometimes you'll call yourself Eurasian, meaning Europe and Asian. So again, he says, this Asian guy who was talking to a white girl, the sight of that filled me with rage. Again, there's that rage. How could an ugly Asian attract the attention of a white girl while a beautiful Eurasian like myself never had any attention from them? So again, there's that grandiosity and that envy. About his Asian roommates, he wrote, these were the biggest nerds I'd ever seen. And they were both very ugly with annoying voices. So I'm guessing they had accents because they were born in Taiwan. I don't know. But he says, these were the biggest nerds I had ever seen, and they were both very ugly with annoying voices. So just, uh, you know, more racism there for you. He called his roommates repulsive and idiots. Here's another quote. If they were pleasant to live with, I would regret having to kill them. But due to their behavior, I now had no regrets about such a prospect. In fact, I'd even enjoy stabbing them both to death while they slept. So this is racism potentially taken to an extreme. So it appears that Elliot Roger was a product of both sexism and racism in our culture. It makes me wonder what groups of people he would have targeted if our culture targeted different people, if you know what I mean. If our culture wasn't so racist or so sexist, maybe some of these things wouldn't have happened. But, you know, it's impossible to tell. So another question I had in addition to sexism or racism and, and other questions is, is, is this mass killing and other mass killings like it, is it, is it due to the prevalence of guns in the United States? You know, here's the big topic of guns. Oh God, where am I going? Okay. It's, you know, so it's, I did a lot of reading and it's really hard to tell. There is some compelling evidence that the more guns there are in a society, the more of these sorts of killings there are. There's a lot of statistics on this and it you know goes around the globe every country has its own policy around guns and every country has its own amount of guns in the population and every country has its own prevalence of mass killings and there is a correlation between the amount of guns and how much mass killings there are which which makes sense you know if you have very very few guns in a society then it becomes difficult to go on a shooting spree right naturally the US has the most guns per capita, which shouldn't surprise you, but among all the countries in the world, the US has the most guns per capita at 89 guns per 100 people. So, you know, for for every 100 people there are 89 guns in society. And and the lowest in the world is Tunisia with 0.1 guns per 100 people. So, we have a range from 0.1 guns per 100 people to 89 guns per 100 people. So so however the percentage of people with guns in their homes has decreased dramatically since the 1970s so that's interesting. It's gone from about 50% to 30%. So even though there are 89 guns per 100 people only 30% of households actually have a gun in it. So it's an interesting statistic. And that's decreased since the 1970s. In the 1970s, about half of the households in America had a gun in it. And now it's gone down to 30%. So so there seems to be a decrease in the amount of people who have guns. But of those people who have guns, they've bought more of them. So the question is, should we change our gun laws? This question comes up after every mass killing. And as a non gun owner myself, uh, I have to say, I wouldn't mind if we started restricting the sale of guns. It doesn't, it doesn't affect me because I don't care about guns. But I know many people who have guns and these people have never harmed anybody. I, I have lots of friends and lots of relatives that love their guns and They have permits and they love shooting them and they love hunting and they love just looking at their guns and they would never harm a fly. These are the nicest people on the planet and, you know, they would absolutely never hurt anyone with these guns. So, you know, I I think that's one of the things that is lost to a lot of people who advocate for stricter gun laws. They just see, uh, they just have this perception of people who own guns as like these aggressive, backwater, angry Idiots or something, but the, in my experience, the people, most of the people who have guns are are just normal people who, for whatever reason, like to have a gun. So I don't know. It seems like the the whole gun control thing is a super hot political issue, and it seems like it, our country will never change. It just seems like whenever this comes up, the people who want to change the laws get uh, optimistic and then nothing happens. And in fact, I think the laws have become even more relaxed since the killings in Sandy at Sandy Hook Elementary. I thought after Sandy Hook Elementary, I, Adam Lanza, I thought after that there would be some action because it seemed like such a tragedy and it just seemed so obvious that we should not have guns out in the community in, in the way that they are. And I believe I heard that the, the gun laws not only remain the same, but became more relaxed. So I, I just don't see our society changing anytime soon. And personally, I wish that both sides would stop accusing the other side of being crazy they they each have their good points and their bad points. I mean, the the quote unquote gun nuts have a point in that Elliot killed and injured many people with a knife and with his car. You know, the people that are saying, you know, we need to get rid of the guns because Elliot Roger killed more people. He killed many people. He killed the three roommates with, with a knife and he also ran over a bunch of people with his car. So, you know, they'll say guns don't kill people, people kill people. And, they'll f- they'll figure out a way to kill people and if they don't have a gun they'll use a knife or they'll use a car and you know there's some logic to that and i think the other side has to just recognize that it really bothers me when i see debates and people don't recognize the other person's point it's and i feel like when you do that, you just make the conversation an argument and rather than trying to find a solution uh, on the other side, uh, the quote unquote anti gun nuts uh, make a good argument by saying that generally speaking countries that have fewer guns in circulation tend to have less gun violence and less spree shootings. And so the people who are advocating for gun rights need to acknowledge that, that our country has a lot of guns in circulation, and we have a lot of mass shootings compared to other countries. But again, um, I've given up hope that the gun laws are going to be changed anytime soon, so, so whatever. Plus, even if we ban the sale of guns from this point forward, there are already so many guns in circulation, it might not make a difference anyway, so who knows. So after reading all the literature on guns and violence and the correlation between the amount of guns in circulation and gun laws and all this stuff, it's it's difficult to figure out what to do because both sides seem to make some good points. But after distilling all the research, it seems likely that if we as a country decided to move in a different direction regarding gun legislation, it seems likely that some of these incidents would be prevented. Will there be people that will have the impulse to kill a bunch of people? Yes. But there seems like there's something we can do. Like, for instance, just as an example with the assault weapons thing. Imagine if we somehow got rid of all assault weapons in in the public uh, in in the United States. Well, that's not going to stop people from using handguns to kill people or stop people from using knives to kill people. But it seems like... One out of, I don't know, 10 or 20 different incidents of mass shootings, there's an assault weapon involved. And if that person didn't have access to that assault weapon, then maybe there would have been less people killed in that instance. I don't know. But it it seems like a, a small price to pay, I think. Again, considering that I don't own guns, so it doesn't impact me. It seems like I have a small price to pay for a potential benefit. So I don't know. I don't know the answer, and I know there are lots of debates on either side, but it seems like we could do something. And to the people who don't want to give up the right to own guns, I just say – isn't there some compromise we can make here? You know, can't, can't we have some movement in the direction of reducing the amount of guns or reducing the lethality of the guns or something? I don't know. Isn't there something we can do? Can't we be reasonable here? So another question I had was, are mass killings on the rise? You know, are they, are they on the rise? And it seems like the answer is yes, but it depends on how you define mass killings. Some, some researchers, when they define mass killings in one particular way, it, they're not on the rise. But when you define it another way, this seems like, but it seems like most of the ways you would define a mass killing, it seems like they're definitely on the rise. For instance, research has found that a particular, you know, kind of regular definition of mass killings, that these kinds of killings have increased from an average of about five a year prior to 2009 to 15 a year in in 2013. So prior to 2009 in the United States, it seemed like there was about five mass shootings a year. And in 2013, there's 15. And I think anecdotally, we can all agree with this. It just seems like there's another mass shooting, you know, every month or something. So uh, it, it does seem like they're on the rise. Having said that, I will say that violent crime is actually declining. So your chance of being killed is actually much less than it was prior to the current time. But mass killings are on the rise. But, but mass killings are such a small percentage of the overall murders in this country that um, you're still safer now than you were before. So anyway, another question I have is, are mass killings a modern American phenomenon? It seems like a lot of people are talking, and it seems anecdotally true, that mass killings have only been happening in recent decades, you know, starting in the 90s and up until now. But the answer to this question is no. Mass killings are not a modern American phenomenon. They happen all over the world, and they've been happening throughout history. For example, in 2013, just last year, a man in Serbia killed 13 people with a firearm and then committed suicide. Sounds very familiar to our own events, right? Uh, as another example, just last week in May of 2014, a man in Taiwan killed four people and injured 24 more people with a foot-long knife in a train station. So even though in Taiwan... Guns aren't as prevalent. We have a guy with a knife killing four people and injuring 24 more people in a train station. So uh, mass killings are not unique to the United States. They happen all over the world. If you go on the Internet, you can search statistics on this. It's, it's really just disheartening <laughs> to look at these statistics. They happen in every culture. Now, they happen more in some cultures than others. And so it's it's an interesting anthropological or social psychology element to look at. So I just want to talk about some of the myths that need to be debunked, some of the myths that I've seen written in the the literature. Again, going back to autism, people with autism are not more likely and maybe even less likely to murder someone. Just want to be clear about that. So again, get this into your heads if it's not. People with autism are not any more likely and maybe even less likely to murder someone. So Make sure you know that. Um, another myth uh, that I want to dispel is that although mental illness may be a risk factor in these sorts of killings, mental illness is not a predictor of murder. So again, this is another myth that's out there. So again, although mental, although having a mental illness, if someone has a mental illness, this may increase the risk to some extent for a mass killing. Mental illness itself is not a predictor of murder. And this is where understanding statistics comes into play. So when you tally all the people who do mass killings and you tally of those people how many of those people have a mental illness, you'll find that there is a higher prevalence of mental illness among those people that do mass killings than there are in the regular population. So if the regular population has, say, you know, 15%, this isn't the exact statistic, but say the regular population, 15% have a mental illness, well, of those people that do mass shootings, say 25% have a mental illness. Well, that means that it's a risk factor. Having a mental illness is a risk factor. But if you have a mental illness, That is not a good predictor of whether or not you're going to have a mass shooting, whether or not you're going to commit a mass shooting, right? Because the vast, vast majority of people with a mental illness never hurt anybody. So that's an important statistic to understand because uninformed people will begin and have begun to see people with mental illness as potential mass murderers, when in fact that is just a completely inaccurate way of looking at it. So uh, more information along these lines, It, it is almost impossible to tell if a person with a mental illness will be violent because the vast majority are never violent. Even those people with mental illness who make threats and even those people who make preparations to hurt people are still unlikely to actually be violent. So this is an important statistic, an important piece to understand, is that if you have someone with a mental illness and they've made threats to people and they've made preparations, that individual is still unlikely to harm anybody. And this is some, a stat that comes into play when we talk about the police visiting Elliot Rogers' uh, apartment. We have the police coming to the apartment with the knowledge that he has put concerning videos on the Internet potentially threatening people. Well, statistics show that of those people that do that, they're not likely to actually hurt anybody. They're just saying things. They're just saying things on the Internet. I mean, think about all the horrible things that you see on the Internet. I mean, if all those people did something, everyone would be dead by now. So people like to talk. It's pretty rare that someone will actually follow that up with an action. So it's an important thing to think about and and something that I think people really forget. They're not told, probably, is a better way to put it. Because it's not like we have newspapers with headlines. Homeless man who has mental illness and has made threats continues not to harm anyone today. You're, n- you're just not going to see a headline like that. But that's what's happening on a daily basis. There are people with mental illness that are making threats and making preparations and never hurt anyone. Well, they're never going to make the paper. So we're never going to hear about them. And then we have this distorted idea of mental illness and violence. So anyway. Another myth I'd like to dispel is it's a myth that mass murderers snap suddenly and kill randomly. So, you know, that's often that's how it's portrayed in the media. You know, it's like there's a man who everyone thought was normal, and then all of a sudden he just snapped and killed everyone. Uh, That's that's a myth. And we see that in the case of Elliot Rodger. Mass murderers, when they actually look back in their histories, typically plan their killing sprees well in advance. They don't suddenly snap. These people typically make plans for a long time. Uh, It's also a myth that violent video games and violent movies cause people to kill people. This is something that a lot of people believe, but it's just simply not true. Because again, the vast, vast majority of people who play violent video games and watch violent movies, which is really at this point, most of the males in America do not kill anybody ever. So if, if these things caused violent behavior, we'd all be dead. So now let's talk about the media for a little bit. So when we when we look at the statistic that mass shootings are on the rise, we have to ask why. Well, one of the possible reasons, which is impossible to prove, is that the way our culture glamorizes these killings might be a factor in its rise. You know, while it's true that we've always glamorized this sort of thing, you know, for example, Jesse James was was glamorized in the 1800s. It's possible that the glamorization has reached an all-time high in recent years in the media, resulting in an increase in the incidence of these sorts of killings. So, if this is true, we might want to stop glamorizing them. Since the beginning of time people and perhaps mainly men have been trying to make a name for themselves. And if people are finding it difficult to make a name for themselves, one of the easiest ways to do that is to do a mass killing. I mean, you'll definitely be talked about, right? Uh, Another thing we might want to consider doing in the media is stop having photos of the killer. When you plaster photos of the killer and videos of the killer everywhere, it, it, it sends this message to people that if you want to become famous Kill a bunch of people, you will become instant. Your your image will be known by everybody, right? And you know, with our fame obsessed culture, you can see how someone might be motivated by that. The other recommendation is potentially not making the coverage, the media coverage, twenty four seven with lots of graphics and lots of different uh, fantastic c- coverage. You know. Another uh, recommendation is don't make the body count the lead story. Don't make the story how many people they killed. Because when you do that, you send us message that the more people you kill, the bigger your story will be. And so if you're planning on being a, a mass murderer, then... You know, you it's almost like a game. You you want to get as many people dead so that you can be the biggest mass killing of that year or something. You know, you, you've beaten a record. And I just want to say, even though I said earlier that video games, they don't cause mass murders to happen. Uh, I was telling a story to someone earlier today and they said, wow, it kind of sounds like he was playing Grand Theft Auto. And I have to say, it does kind of sound like that when he jumped in his car and he's driving around those streets and he's uh, going the wrong way down the street and he's, he's got his gun out the door and he's shooting people and he's talking and shooting and running over people with his car. If you've watched any slightly sadistic person play Grand Theft Auto, that's exactly the way it looks. They're driving around the town, killing people, running them over it's eerily similar to that. But, but anyway, so another uh, recommendation is make the story boring in the media. One, one of the ways to reduce the prevalence of copycat mass murders is to make the story really boring. If you make it super exciting, then it might be attractive to some people who are susceptible to this sort of message. All right. So the last thing I want to talk about, my God, this podcast has gone on forever, but the last thing I want to talk about is the severe shortage of psychiatric beds in the United States. This is a major problem, people. A report recently found that the US has a deficit of nearly 100,000 inpatient beds. I just want I just want you to think about that. So a report recently found, even if that's an exaggeration, say 50,000, we have, you know, 50,000, maybe 100,000 People who need to be in a psychiatric hospital, but there is no bed, and so we can't put them in there. Just, just so you know how the language works in my in my industry. It's not like they're saying they don't have a bed, like a physical cot that they can sleep on. What a bed means is that there's enough funds, public funds, that will pay for a patient to stay overnight or 24 hours in in an inpatient facility. The the report said that we need to have 100,000 more to meet the need of society. And that's a problem. And so what this ends up doing is those 100,000 individuals are now on the streets. They're now not being helped. They're now not being supported potentially. And the results are is an increase in homelessness, which we have seen. They go to homeless shelters. They're in public parks. They're in public libraries. They're on the bus. If you live in the city, you've seen this. Well, if there were more inpatient psychiatric beds, those, some of those people wouldn't be there, if not a majority of them. Another result of not having enough psych- psychiatric beds is that the emergency room is being overcrowded with these people. These people need a lot of help. You know, if you're psychotic and you have delusions, you might hurt yourself. You might be confused. You might not know what's happening. You might be scared because you're on the street and you don't know where to go. One of the places they end up is the emergency room. And so all of us are paying for that. All of us are paying with tax money or with our insurance premiums for these homeless people These mentally ill people to get services through the emergency room rather than at a lesser cost and at a proper inpatient bed. So just know that. Another result that that having a lack of inpatient beds is the use of jails and prisons as psychiatric hospitals. This is a known fact. As we have reduced the amount of psychiatric beds available, all these people have just ended up in the prisons. There are many, many mentally ill people who are incarcerated right now. It's a known fact. You ask anyone who works in law enforcement, you ask anyone who works for the prison system, you ask anyone, any psychologist who works, you know, for assessing people, they will all tell you there are way too many mentally ill people in prison because we just don't have the psychiatric services available for these people. They end up committing violent crimes, by the way, harming your family members potentially and end up in prison. When, if they got proper help and studies have shown this, if they would get proper help, if we had psychiatric beds for them, and this means tax dollars, people and policy changes, if we had those psychiatric beds, these people would not commit the violent crime. So studies have shown that between five to 10% of seriously mentally ill persons who are not receiving treatment will commit a violent crime each year, such as murder, robbery, assault, and rape. So again, just want to say this again. Studies have shown that between 5 to 10% of seriously mentally ill persons, so people with schizophrenia, this sort of thing. So, 5 to 10% of those people who are not receiving treatment because we are so stupid that we don't have enough psychiatric beds, these people will commit a violent act each year. 5 to 10% of these people. And some of these acts are murder, robbery, assault, and rape. And this is very real, okay? So if we allocated funds for psychiatric beds, w- according to research, and it seems logical that we would reduce some of the horrible things that happened to people. So getting to the history, uh, research has shown that in 1955, there were 340 public psychiatric beds available for each 100,000 U.S. citizens. So again, 300 public psychiatric beds for every 100,000 U.S. citizens. So not that many, but but 340. 50 years later, in 2005, that number was reduced to 17 beds per 100,000 U.S. citizens. So we went from 340 to 17. Thus, 95% of the available beds in 1955 are no longer available today. And currently, it varies by state with Mississippi having the most with 50 and Arizona having six. So it varies by state. Again, we have 340 in 1955, and now we have 17. Now, according to a report I read, they recommend that we need about 50 in each state, Mississippi has that right now. I find it strange that Mississippi is the one that has it, but they're the one that ha- has 50 and this report says that every state needs to have about 50 per 100,000. So so the history of this is interesting. In in the past, the the law was such that people could be involuntarily detained and committed for quite dubious reasons. So in the early part of the 20th century, you would find people being locked up because they seemed angry or they were depressed and so they or a husband didn't like his wife anymore there were there are many cases like this where lots of people were being locked up in what we would call now insane asylums for very dubious reasons so in the 1960s and 1970s our culture changed and we began to have more compassion toward people with mental illness and we changed the law so that the standard for involuntary confinement required a court finding that a person Was in danger to him or herself or to others, and the detention could only be for a very short period. So, again, in the 60s and 70s, we we changed and we said, hey, you can't just lock up someone for no good reason. You have to have a court actually decide this. And even if the court does decide that this person is a danger to themselves or to other people, you can only lock them up for a little bit of time because people have rights. So, you know, seemed like a good thing, right? So along, this, along these lines during this time, we also saw a huge increase in the available of outpatient services for these people. So the model was, look, get them out of the insane asylums and put them into outpatient. Get them into the world. Help them, you know, function in the world. Let's not just lock them up in basically a prison. Let's try to help them out. However, it seems as though the pendulum swung way too far, and now we have almost no psychiatric beds for people and the threshold for involuntary detainment might be a little too high. So, but this is a very sticky topic because if we try to prevent other mass killings by involuntarily detaining and treating more people with lesser observable risk, then more innocent people are going to be unnecessarily detained. You know what I'm saying? So, so if, if, if we're going to say, look, we need to start we need to increase the amount of public psychiatric beds. We need to allocate funds for that. We also need to we also need to lower the bar regarding when someone needs to be involuntarily detained cuz right now you have to be imminently in danger of harming yourself or someone else in order to be involuntarily detained in a psychiatric situation. And some would say that that has to be relaxed. Some would say with Elliot Roger, in particular, when the police arrived at his apartment, we need the police to react more readily to that situation. We need to have more beds and we need the threshold to be lower. Well, what this is going to do is some people are going to be detained when they don't need to be because the threshold is lower. So some people are going to have their rights infringed upon when they don't need to have that happen. So it's a very sticky thing, you know, imagine a society that locks up people for appearing unsafe to themselves and other people. I mean, just imagine a society that's like that. I mean, we do it now. Uh, But only under extreme circumstances do we involuntarily detain someone that seems like a danger. Uh, Imagine you're having a bad day, so yourself. You're having a bad day and you're you're depressed and you're just not feeling well and someone observes this and thinks you're going to hurt yourself and they call the police and the police and you don't you don't know about any of this and suddenly the police are banging on your door and you're like huh and they show and you open your door and you have a panic attack cuz you these gun, you know they have guns and they're intimidating and they observe your behavior as being some kind of situation and they decide to lock you up. Well, that's not cool, right? You know, the reason why we have such a high threshold is because we don't want people like that to be locked up unnecessarily. It's it's a, it's a draconian by some standards. But on the other hand, it would be a good thing if we could prevent violent crime and mass killings by lowering the threshold of involuntary commitment. So, you know, it it's difficult to know what to do here. I just want to provide one final thought. There is variation in human behavior. People do weird things. <laughs> Sometimes I, whenever I think about mass killings like this, and I'm looking for answers, you know, I'm looking like, why did this happen? Why this person? Was it mental illness? No, lots of mentally ill people make threats and never do anything. Was it because he was bullied? No. The vast, vast majority of people who get bullied never harm a fly. Is it because he was on Xanax or some other thing? No. Again, the vast majority of people don't do this. So what is it? I'm looking for an answer. Is it a psychological profile? No. Most of the people with that psychological profile would never do something like this. So what is it? Why did this happen? Well, what I often come to is I have this visualization of, many different bell curves in my mind. If you know what a bell curve distribution curve looks like, you know, imagine it in your mind and you have all the average people in the middle and you have fringe people on the right and fringe people on the left. Well, if you think about the way people dress, for instance, you know, most people in your town dress the same. They wear the same jeans. They wear the same shirts. They wear the same Gore-Tex jacket. They wear the same shoes. There's a, there's a pretty good group in the middle. This average group, big chunk of people that tends to dress within a certain range at one end of the spectrum though you will find people dressing very strange but there will be very few people out there and you will find that whatever one person can wear someone out there is wearing it lady gaga is out there wearing a dress made out of meat now no one would have thought that someone would do that right who in the world would wear a dress made out of meat? That is bizarre. I would never do that. That person is way out on the fringe. What made that person decide to wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to wear a meat dress? Now, when it comes to a meat dress, we think, well, that's strange behavior, but whatever, it doesn't really mean anything to us because it's, it's just a dress. It doesn't harm anybody. But when it comes to behavior like violence, that's when we start trying to look for answers. Like no one looks to answers as to why Lady Gaga wore that meat dress on that particular day. No one is fretting over why she did that. You know, what kind of personality leads someone to wear a meat dress? It's a highly aberrant behavior. It's extremely unique. It 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 very rarely happens, but we don't need to know why. We're we're okay with not knowing why someone would do that. We just say, "Well, you know," People are people, and there's lots of variation. Well, when it comes to behavior like, like killing people, it's the same thing in my mind. The vast majority of people, whether they have mental illness or not, whether they come from an entitled background or not, do not kill people. Everyone has anger. Everyone will probably at some point in their life have a violent urge, and, and many people might even have murderous urges when they're particularly angry. But the vast majority of people never act upon that. But there's always going to be people at the fringe that will act upon that, that have particular beliefs or they wake up in the morning and make particular decisions and they end up committing those acts. That's the way that I see situations like this. Is it's very aberrant behavior. It's very strange. And it's, a, it's one of the possible human behaviors that is available to us. You know, if someone woke up in the morning and says, I'm going to jump and fly to the moon. Well, I'm sure there's people that, that actually wake up in the morning and say that to themselves, but they can't do it because it's not physically possible. Of all the various different things one can wake up in the morning and decide to do, one of them just happens to be, I'm going to go on a mass killing. And they have the ability to do that. They have the ability to actually carry out that that impulse. And so when you have seven and a half or seven point whatever billion people on the planet You have a very large amount of people waking up in the morning and making decisions to do things with their day. And if you have enough people and you have the means to do so in that society, you're going to have some of those people committing some very strange behaviors like wearing a meat dress or going on a mass killing. Now, I don't want to demean or belittle or minimize mass killings as as somehow as innocuous as wearing a meat dress. Mass killing is not innocuous. It's a horrible, evil, heinous, destructive, traumatic act. But I just want to point out that human behavior varies. And sometimes there's no answer as to why it happens, or at least no satisfactory answer. Because certainly me coming to this bell curve distribution of behavior is not satisfactory to me. It doesn't help me wake up, you know, this perspective is quite uh, upsetting. It means that no matter what we do, there's always going to be people like that on the fringes. Now we could probably affect some change in that area, but we're probably always going to have people have, have those impulses, but I would much rather have some answer that is fixable, like let's do blank and that will never happen again. But the more and more I look at situations like this, the more I realize that it's, It's just going to happen. And again, it happens in every culture, in every country, in every society. So at this point, the very end of the podcast, let's review my initial questions that I asked at the very beginning. So the first question I had was, why did this happen? Why did Elliot Roger kill all these people? And it seems like there's no easy answer. But if I was to come up with a bunch of answers that may have been contributors, I would say that. Too few psychiatric beds, as I talked about earlier. Also, too high of a threshold for involuntary holds. For the people to be involuntarily detained, it seems like the threshold might be too high. Also, I didn't talk about this, but genetics probably played a role. I'm guessing in the future, and we're starting to see some evidence of this now, that there are certain genetic components to personality development that might lead to behavior such as this. I, they'll never find I'm sure a gene that will lead to mass shootings of course because that's ridiculous but you know maybe there are genes around the ability to uh, tolerate stress or genes around being able to empathize this sort of thing and, you know they, I think they're already starting to discover some things along those lines also in answer to why did this happen we can say that mental illness probably played a role and what do we mean by mental illness you know it, it's it's a It's a a squishy concept. One way of seeing it in this light is that Elliot Roger had something different about the way that his nervous system operated. And because of that difference, it led to a lot of suffering for him. I mean, clearly he was suffering his entire life. And eventually culminated in him feeling as though it was a good decision for him to kill a bunch of people and then kill himself. I mean, one of the angles that I hadn't really brought up yet, is that he could have actually been motivated by suicide. He certainly was suffering. He certainly had exhibited a lot of reasons why he didn't like his life. And he likely was thinking about suicide. And sometimes when people think about suicide, they also think about doing something else just before they die, like killing other people. So If he hadn't have been suicidal, might he have done this? I don't know. So it's another thing to think about. Sometimes people think about these mass shootings as motivated primarily by trying to kill a bunch of people, and then they're backed into a corner, and then they kill themselves. But another possible way of looking at this is that they started off with the motivation of suicide and then thought, well, what's one last thing I can do? So that's another way of looking at it. Another reason as to why this might have happened might have been the potential trauma that I alluded to a couple of times. There's no direct evidence of that, at least as of yet, but it seems like there's some arrows pointing at the possibility that he was traumatized as a young child. Uh, but that's just speculation. But all this is speculation. So. Another reason why this might have happened was because there might be too many guns and ammunition in circulation. Anyone who wants to commit a mass shooting has ample access to as many guns as they want and as much ammo as they want. So just another thing to think about. Um, Another reason as to why did this happen, Uh, according to many people, we live in a society with a culture of glorifying violence. We live in a culture of misogyny and racism. And he seemed to exemplify the exaggerated version of this, the grand theft auto culture, the sexist culture, the culture of rape, the culture of racism. He seemed to be an exaggeration of this. And if we didn't have a culture like that, might he have done this? Unknown. A lot of speculation. And the last reason that I came up with as to why this happened was it's just a potential variance in human behavior regardless of culture. Again, as I was talking about earlier, there's always going to be a variance in human behavior, and some people are going to have impulse to do this. Now, does that mean that we should just give up and accept that these things are going to happen? No, because there's a lot of things that we could probably do to prevent this. Actually, that's not the last reason I came up with regarding why he might have done this. Another area to look into is his psychodynamic reasons. Now, again, as with all of this podcast, this is complete speculation, and the following discussion about his psychodynamic reasons are extremely speculative based on Internet information. And also, some of you might even consider it to be psychobabble, considering that psychodynamic formulations are sometimes seen as such, and I appreciate that. It's a model that I like to apply to people, but it's not as if I believe that these things are hard science, if that makes any sense. And and before going into this explanation, I just have to point out that my own particular psychodynamic theory is particular to me. Many of my ideas are shared by others, but some of my ideas are actually quirky to me. So don't think that I'm representing mainstream psychodynamic thought. So one possible way of looking at why he did this was that he internalized society's notions as a way of protecting him from the onslaught that he felt. So for whatever reason, early in his childhood and throughout his adolescence and into his adult life, he felt as though society was harming him. He felt that the world was harmful. And one of the ways to protect yourself from that internally is, in your mind is to start internalizing strong things. The example that I like to give is, you know, who are the most insecure people on the earth? Well, they're teenagers. And who are the people on the earth most likely to idolize somebody? Well, they're teenagers. Teenagers are extremely likely to have posters of their most favorite people on their walls. Well, I grew up in the 80s when they still had posters. Do do people still have posters? Probably not. They probably have like digital poster rooms on their computers or something but but anyway you know all of us anecdotally can remember or, or see cases where teenagers will idolize certain people and as people age they tend to idolize less and young children tend not to idolize as much or they idolize their parents there's a lot of ideas about this but anyway One way of looking at this is that when people are insecure, they will look toward a strong persona to internalize into themselves as a way of trying to gain that strength. And Elliot Roger might have done this through misogyny and through racism. He might have tried to protect himself from the harm that he thought was happening to him by internalizing strong male personas and strong white male personas. Because he seemed to be parroting a lot of the misogynistic and racist ideas of bigots. It's possible that Elliot Roger might have seen bigots as being strong and other people as being weak. And so he might have internalized these messages as a way of trying to gain that strength. Another way of looking at this through a psychodynamic lens is that he grew up feeling extremely rejected, clearly, right? And he probably felt that way since he was a young child. And if we're going to look at his psychodynamics, we have to look at his experience. We have to imagine what his experience was like. And one way of looking at his experience was that he was struggling and suffering a lot. Given the way that he saw the world, he was probably suffering a great deal on a daily basis. And he felt eternally rejected and desperately wanted to be accepted but due to his behavior he compelled people to reject him and it's possible that he felt this way early in life with his parents it seems unlikely that when he was a young child that he felt a normal sense of acceptance from his parents and then suddenly at you know later ages felt extreme rejection from everybody it just seems more likely that from an early age he was suffering from his semi-delusions that other people were in constant rejection of him. And so that, in my view, in a psychodynamic view, in some people's psychodynamic view, is a, a primary need for people, the need to be accepted by our families, the need to be accepted by our parents in particular. And when we feel as though we're not getting that acceptance, we will try various different things to gain it. And or tried various different things to protect ourselves from the pain of that realization of that rejection. And so one hypothesis is that he latched on to the hatred of women and the hatred of non-white people as a way of trying to protect himself from the notion, the realization that he was rejected by everyone, including those close to him. Even though he might not have actually been rejected, he might he just potentially thought that he was being rejected. So rather than acknowledging that he was being rejected by all those people that were close to him, people that he desperately wanted their acceptance, rather than acknowledging that, he could distract himself by attacking people in his mind. Instead of acknowledging the fact that he felt rejected by his parents, he might have latched on to misogyny and racism as a way of attacking somebody other than his parents. Sometimes when people have an extreme conflict with someone that's very close to them, they might displace that anger towards someone else because it's too painful to enact that emotion with the person that's close to you for a number of reasons. One is is that the, the person that is close to you, you might actually worry that they'll reject you further if you actually express your displeasure directly with them. Another reason might be, again, that if you express your anger towards the person that is close to you, you have to acknowledge first that they're the person that you are hurt by. And that conscious realization might be too painful for some people. So, again, this might be all psychobabble to you, but this is how I tend to think about people sometimes. Another relationship that I wish I had more information on was his relationship with his sister. He has a younger sister who grew up with him, and it would be interesting to find out what her reaction was and how his relationship was with her. He had an extreme anger toward women, and his sister was a young woman, so what was his associations with her? It's just a question. And did his upbringing Have anything to do with that again this is all just complete speculation and even just flat-out making stuff up but he grew up he was an he was a first child and a common conflict for first children is when the second child is born first children grow up in a world at first in which they are the only child they are the the golden child children are inherently narcissistic anyway and firstborns and only children have that narcissism entertained for much longer than other people do. And so when the second child comes along, they have a dilemma. They have a crisis that they have to face. They have to navigate an interpersonal reality that they are not the center of the universe anymore the way that they used to. And there is a, a way of coming out of that in a healthy way, like, well, I even though I have a younger sibling, I, I still know that my parents love me. They're just not going to give me a 100% of their attention anymore because they have I have a younger sibling. And most people are able to navigate that in a healthy way. But a lot of people, for whatever reason, have difficulty with that. And so it's possible that in that crisis, he came out of it very hurt, very damaged, and eternally felt rejected and resentful of girls. So again, complete speculation, but another possibility. Another area, again, of complete speculation that I see happening with people like this, people who are narcissistic, is that when they're young and throughout their childhood, they're told that they are very special while at the same time being denied certain needs. So if, if you have a childhood in which you feel as though your parents aren't there for you as much as you would like them to be. Maybe they're abusive. Maybe they're distant. Maybe they're too busy for you. Maybe they're depressed. While at the same time, these parents are telling you that you are a golden child, that you are so special, that you're better than other people. Well, this environment, in my experience, can be fertile ground for the development of a particular brand of narcissism later in life. And so I just wonder if his childhood was like that. Of course, I have no data on that, but it's just a question. Another question that I have is what effect the move from Britain to L.A. was like for him. Moves for children and for people are very traumatic, but particularly for children sometimes because they have a difficult time soothing themselves and they become attached to certain people in certain places, perhaps much more strongly than adults do. And so, you know, if you grow up in an area the first eight years of your life and then you suddenly move, you can imagine that that might be difficult for him. And maybe that's when some of these issues started to arise. Maybe when he was young, he had a propensity to feel rejected, but was doing mostly okay. And then he moves and his propensity to feel rejected became exaggerated by the stress of having to meet new people and new friends. So just a just a question there. Also, of course, his parents got divorced. What effect did that have on his psychology? Now, this isn't to say that kids who move or get divorced end up being spree killers. By. By no means am I saying that because you know divorce is highly prevalent. But if someone has a, a tendency in a particular direction, a number of stressors can push them down a particular road. And so it's just a question. You, know, you wonder how he reacted to the divorce. And also, I wonder how much conflict his parents had prior to the divorce. In my experience, people will have a lot of conflict prior to a divorce. And they have difficulty shielding the children from the knowledge of this conflict. In some families, the children are, to some extent, abused by being exposed to 99% of that conflict. And, and some children are even dragged in. Like, you know, daddy saying... You you love me more than you love mommy, right? Because mommy's crazy and she likes to cheat on people and she's going to reject you just like she rejected me. And so people will definitely have conversations like that. I mean, divorces bring out the worst in people. And so I just wonder what the divorce was like for Elliot. Now, it could have been, you know, that the parents navigated the divorce extremely healthily. So, you know, again, it's all just questions. Another thing to think about in terms of um, Elliot's I almost say Elliot Smith again. Elliot Rogers' psychodynamic makeup is what effect his father's professional failings had on Elliot. Again, it's all questions at this point. There's there's no way to know, but it's clear that Elliot, from his writings, felt ashamed of his father's professional shortcomings or professional "quote unquote" failures. You know, as I mentioned earlier, in in his in his writings, he mentions that. So I can just imagine in this family, the family is, is very dependent on the father's income, and he decides to invest all of his money. Uh, I read that he invested something like $200,000 of his own money into that documentary that he made about God. And it's a huge gamble, right? And you put in a lot of work, and you're, you're rolling the dice, and apparently it didn't pay off. Well, it's likely that the family was going through a lot of stress during that time. Maybe there is some conflict. It's unknown, but definitely financial stress, right? And Elliot was in the midst of that emotional system and that emotional family system. And what effect did that have on Elliot? Did that give Elliot certain ideas? Again, we can assume that Elliot might have had a genetic disposition toward a particular kind of difficulty, Did this financial difficulty in the family push him down a particular road that only people born with his genetics have available to them? He certainly had a lot of ideas of entitlement. He certainly tried to puff himself up. He certainly tried to give off the impression that he was a very special person worthy of respect and fame. And, oh, this is interesting. I never thought about this. In a sense, his videos were almost a documentary, right? His videos have become basically a documentary about someone who goes on a mass killing. And he, his father, when he was young, Elliot was young, Elliot watched his father do just that. He watched his father film a lot of things, trying to succeed, trying to become famous, trying to have his documentary do well, all the while investigating God. And then we have this parallel with Elliot filming himself uh, repeatedly And documenting something big that was about to happen. In a way, you might see this as Elliot's way of showing up his father or even being loyal to his father, saying, Look, you know, I can carry this flag for you and the family and provide fame for the family in this way. I know how to do this. You know, again, it's all potential psychobabble to you, but just thoughts that I have. Another area of exploration that I would love to conduct would be his relationship with his mother and his stepmother. He clearly had a lot of anger towards women. And where did this come from? Did it come from his relationship with his mother? Did it come from his relationship with his stepmother? A lot of children, when their parents remarry, a lot of children will hate the stepparent. And it appears that Elliot was uh, one of those children. He wrote about how much he hated her and even planned on killing her at some point. So did this entry of this, this other person into the family when the father married this other woman, did this challenge him and lead to Elliot hating her and therefore hating all women. And as a way of displacing that anger, he decided to kill other women or target other women. Again, could be psychobabble, but it's interesting thought to think about for me anyway. So another question I had at the beginning of the show was, who is this guy? Who was Elliot Roger?" It's difficult to know who he is, uh, who he was. It's difficult to answer that question. As his father said, he was an enigma. Another question that I had at the beginning of the show was, who were the victims? He injured many people, but of the people that have died, there were three Taiwanese nationals who were going to school at UCSB. Two of them apparently were roommates of his. There were two women victims, Catherine Cooper and Veronica Weiss, who were going to UCSB. Then there was Christopher Michael Martinez, who was 20 years old. Another question I had at the beginning was, was it the parents' fault? I would say after reviewing all the things that I reviewed, I would say that it's not likely that the parents can be blamed for this event. It's unsure. Uh, uh, you know. More information is probably needed to really make a, a full evaluation of that. But the parents seem to be doing all the things that we expect parents to do in situations like this. Pay attention to the situation. Get him help. They even called the police when they thought that he was dangerous. Uh, a lot of parents wouldn't do that, and and they, and they did that. So, I mean, they called – the mother called the therapist who called the police. But another question I had at the beginning was, is it the police fault? Did Can we blame the police for this? And I would say perhaps, but it's probably not the fault of the individual police officers because – They were probably trained to respond in this particular way, and their experience probably told them that the likelihood of this person committing crimes is probably low because, again, most people that present like this don't ever do anything. I would say that it's probably uh, the fault of the way that the system works. And again, it's a sticky thing because if we lower the bar to involuntarily detain people, then a lot of innocent people are going to start getting detained. And do we really want the police to be doing that? So it's it's a questionable th- issue there. Another question I had at the beginning of the show was: Is it the mental health, is it the mental health system's fault? And I would say perhaps because again, not enough psychiatric beds, not enough advocacy for this sort of thing in in my field. I feel like it's a forgotten issue. Not a lot of people are trying to change our system in this way, and I think if we did, we might see a reduction in these sorts of killings, and we might have seen Elliot Smith, Elliot Smith, <laughs> Elliot Roger actually get help for this. Speaking of Elliot Smith, I mean, he killed himself. He's my favorite uh, songwriter, singer-songwriter. The other question I had was, was it the mental health professional's fault? And I would say it's unsure. We haven't heard from any of the clinicians yet, but based on what I've read, I would say they're probably not to blame. I mean, take it from me, mental health professionals see a lot of people like this, and the vast majority of clients who present like this never hurt anybody. And then when one of the therapists was exposed to some of the more extreme behaviors that he was exhibiting, the therapist did call the police, and, and the police didn't do much. So can we blame the, the medical, the mental health professionals? I don't know yet. I'm sure there's probably going to be an investigation, but – so I don't know. Um, I'm a bit defensive of the mental health profession, so maybe someone less biased than me might actually start blaming the professionals, but I don't know what else they could have done. He was refusing treatment in the end anyway. So. so the last question I'll discuss that I had in the beginning was how can we prevent this from happening again? And I would say, again, we need more beds. We need more public psychiatric beds. We need to change our culture regarding misogyny. We absolutely need to do that. We need to change our culture regarding racism. We need to stop glorifying people like this in the media. We need to figure out a way to reduce access to guns by people like this. I have no idea how to do that, but... If there's a way to reduce access of guns to people like this, then we need to do that. We need to develop a better medication with fewer side effects. He incidentally stopped taking his medication, apparently, because he didn't like the side effects. And that's this is what a lot of people say. There are potentially a lot of side effects of some medication, and we need to work on ways to reduce those side effects so that people will take their medication. We need to conduct more research on people such as these people. It's difficult to study these people because they often kill themselves, and they're few and far between, and they often don't present in a similar fashion. But I think psychology could do more to research people like this. We also need to reduce the stigma of therapy and medication. If our society had less of a stigma around therapy, maybe he would have gone more often. Maybe he would have listened to his therapist more. It's not uncommon in my experience to see people as age not go to therapy because they don't think that they need it. And why don't they think that they need it? Because they're told that therapy is for weak people and they don't want to go because they don't want to be stigmatized as being weak or crazy or something like that. So if we had a different culture around, around therapy, and it's, and it's changing, it's getting better for sure, but if we did some more, maybe we would see more people who need to get help actually get the help that they need. So I just got an alert email from my university where I work indicating that there was a shooting at a neighboring university. Quite a coincidence, right? As I'm finishing up this podcast about a killing at a university or associated with a university in California, I just get an email saying that at Seattle Pacific University, SPU, a gunman walked in to the university and shot a bunch of people and may have even killed one person. If anyone remembers the podcast episode in which I talked about infidelity, if you remember our, I talked about going to a training, well, that training was at SPU, was at this university. And it's a small university, so I know exactly where this shooting took place at this university. And actually, I I have a long relationship with this university. I've had many friends go there. And and at Antioch, my department is actually quite close to the corresponding department at SPU. And so we often will do things together as 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 universities, as programs. So I'm looking at news articles right now, and I am freaking out. It's terrible. So again... These sorts of things happen all the time, apparently, and even just close to my home, close to my university. And here we are. I don't even know what to say. Um, I don't know what to say, other than... Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me on this long journey with a twist at the end. If you would like to email me, that would be great. I would be happy to hear from you for those of you who have emailed me in the past you know that i actually respond to emails i'm not one of those podcasters that gets too many emails that i can't respond to them so i you know i will likely respond to them if you're you know nice and coherent i'll, I'll respond to them so uh, if you have any thoughts at all just uh, send me an email I'd love to hear from you because I always wonder what people think you know when I record these podcasts I think is anyone listening because the statistics say thousands of people are listening but it's it's always a strange experience to record a podcast put it out there and not get any response and think well there's a possibility that thousands of people heard me and there's a possibility that no one heard me. There's just really no way to know. So I'd I'd love to hear from you. From you. If anything, just to know that you're out there and maybe even something uplifting because I'm, I'm feeling a little depressed right now after reading these these news articles that just popped up. It makes me wonder if people are going to walk into my university and kill people that I know or even myself. So I don't know. It's just a scary world, I suppose. So that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me, and please, please take care of yourself.